Have you ever had a thought or knowing and you were so sure a friend just told you a couple of weeks before? No, wait, that can't be right. Maybe it was a dream. Yes, yes, that was probably it, but when did I have that dream? Or have you ever had what feels like a memory, but you can't quite be sure whether it's true? What with our memories being a very fragile, moldable thing and all? Maybe I am remembering a dream. And surely this wishy-washy brain slush gives way to many cracks in our recollections. But yet it doesn't stop our minds from assigning a deep sense of meaning, knowing, and belief into them nonetheless. And then I have to wonder why that is. That if left unexamined, much of the data in our brains might be corrupted. And much of how we experience memories and past knowings aren't anything we really speak about out loud. You know, that is, until we're at the dinner table for a family gathering and someone recalls something before someone else adamantly says they're wrong because they were there and they remember it totally differently. And everyone else looks around the table, forced to reconcile this chasm between fact and fiction. A Schrodinger's memory. Well, did it happen this way or that? Was it up or down? Dead or alive? The past couple of weeks, as I've ever so tentatively dipped my toes into the fairy realm, I've been left in a similar conundrum, with no solid anecdotes this time really to derive to share, but rather these peripheral visions from long times passing, with a memory or two from a young age and a recurring vision. Or was it a dream? The first I close my eyes and my brother and I are running through the forest in spring. The dead bronze and ochre-colored furled leaves crunch beneath our feet in a thick layer as we run, challenging one another to look for fairies and leprechauns as copper sunbeams dance between towering trees. And there, I swear, I see a couple of little people running ahead of us, flitting between the layers of leaves close enough to see, but still far enough out of reach we're sure to never catch them. Another memory? This time, I've lost a tooth at an age where I truly believe a tooth fairy is coming to pick it up. My head hits the pillow. I sleep. And then awake. I am in the middle of the night to see a green, luminescent fairy leaving an emerald, glittering trail in her wake as she dances around my head. And I'm satisfied with this because I knew she was coming. My mom told me so and I drift back off to sleep. There's another entire vision I've had of a kingdom, and I feel I've written a story about this place before, or at least dreamt of writing it. And it's a sunrise in some type of oasis. But as I've struggled to recycle these memories or visions or dreams or whatever they are in my inner sight, you know, the more I try to examine them and label them as something, I met with a playful shh as the memories dissolve into waves. It's as if I've tried looking at them too directly and muddied the waters of my psyche. And it's not until maybe I've come into the forest, or maybe not, but yet I'm still doing some unfixed task that these memories come back to me, playfully, on the periphery, but leave again before I've had too much time to capture it and think about it too hard. But even if I'm unsure of my own memories, like all of you, maybe within the problem, lies the solution, or the problem is the solution. Perhaps the problem is the answer, that when contemplating the existence of the Fae, the magic of the forest, or really any folklore or myth, we are forced to reconcile that liminal space between the, one might say, Newtonian and the quantum, that which is to be written down as official for public eye versus what is to be spoken of in hushed tones over the burning embers of a fire. 
maybe along the foothills of the Emerald Island, where the Celtic lore oscillates across the land. Staff of hazel, stone of green, soulless, formless, face unseen, watching from their fairy home, from whitethorn bough and mossy stone. The ring for it is their hallowed land, so this you must now understand, that if you break the fairy's trust, all that you love shall turn to dust. For Greenlanders like Finn, the disappearing ice is a weather vane. Proof global warming is happening right here, right now. When you live here, you don't really have to be a scientist to notice the, the changes that we've seen. The world is magic, not a little bit. 100% every atom from one end of this cosmos to the other is magic, magic, magic. From coast to coast, people are fleeing flames, wind and water. They're very dangerous conditions, and um, in 22 years of doing this, I've never seen fire conditions like this. Mycophobia, the irrational fear of the unknown when it comes to fungi. Up the coast, the Pacific Northwest saw a record-breaking heat wave earlier in the summer. This is unfortunately the, our new normal. This is the first time it was 116 degrees. We have now entered into 6X, the sixth major extinction on this planet. Fate has chosen you to hear about this. I, I actually think the psychedelic experience is significant because it, it addresses the two biggest problems we face as a civilization, which I would list as tribalism and the environmental crisis. The mycelium is sentient. It knows that you are there. When you walk across landscapes, it leaps up in the aftermath of your footsteps trying to grab debris. It's what everyone thinks is impossible. That's actually what it is. You've had a, a taste of another way to be, of a more open, less defended way to be, and you have that memory, and you can reconnect to it. it it's, uh, it's boundary dissolving is what it is, and we have a real aversion to that. When the boundary that's dissolved is serious, we have a real aversion to it. I think engaging mycelium can help save the world. Hello everyone, how are we doing today? Welcome back to another episode of the Future Mycelium Podcast with moi, Jenna Masomi. Boy, do we have an exciting episode today, and I might have said that before, and I'll probably say it in the future, but if perchance this is my apex, this is it, and it's downhill from here, I'm not going to be mad because what we're talking about today, what this has elicited in me as a researcher of the podcast, all of the energies that have swirled around me when I've asked for this sort of divine leading of information to share with all of you today, boy, have I gone down a lot of different rabbit holes and I've attracted different types of people into my life. I've put my fishing line out and I fished up a lot of really interesting stuff, maybe even a mermaid. And I know that tis the season for the Saint Patty. And there's an interesting thought when it comes to 
themed episodes around a celebration such as St. Patrick's Day. And I want to preface by saying that this episode isn't going to have so much directly to do with St. Patrick and leprechauns. We're not going to be talking about that the whole time. What we will be discussing is some of the intersections between ethnomycology, the historical and cultural and social study of mushrooms or fungi, alongside the fae, right? Fairies, the fairy realm, and how it has come from, at least from Ireland, We're going to be starting in Ireland, and we're going to be talking about how that pagan belief or those ancient Celtic beliefs have morphed into what has been packaged to us capitalistically in the West, maybe in America in the present day, and why that is. (laughs) I think that's really, really interesting. We're going to be having some discussions about like the difference between a scientific approach and a naturalist approach to nature discussing the belief in fairies straight up. We're going to be talking about that. I'm excited about that. I'm going to dispel as much myth as I can, demystify and open up the the conversation around fairies in a way that I hope is uplifting to the fae community because wouldn't you know it, this was a little bit of news to me is that a seemingly new, at least it is a more known identity, a gender identity is that of the fae. And I would encourage you to go and look up a little bit more about that. But I didn't know that at first because this is what happens. Little old me is like, okay, let's learn about fairies. That's going to be easy. I can do that in like a day. And then I'm like, hmm, thousands of years of cultural folklore and its implications on society. Yeah, that's totally digestible in a couple of hours. So my naive cannonball uh, morphed into something of a tentative doggy paddle as I was doing my research and I was like, wow, maybe I have a lot of uh, capitalism to unpack around St. Patrick's Day. (laughs) Maybe I have a lot of bias to unpack around the Fae because I didn't want to disrespect it, especially because this is a huge cultural phenomenon. I guess I've learned a lot about myself and I'm sort of starting to uncover like, why was I disinterested in it in the first place? Or why did I have no interest to know about it? Because I didn't, I never was all that interested in Lord of the Rings or any Game of Thrones, it's only starting to become interesting to me now, which you might be surprised. And me too. So I was like, well, why is that? And so it's been forcing me to also reconcile with with the unseen world, really, and my own witnessing of that and my own thoughts and feelings and beliefs around that. And maybe this episode will also have you thinking about that world in a new way. Our guests today are, I'm so excited that I've, I, I got the perfect, perfect guest for today, okay? Irish storytellers who have a business and podcast called Candlelit Tales, and it's a sibling duo, and their names are Sorica and Aaron Hegarty, and I brought them in and on (laughs) inside the podcast, any preposition you want, to discuss a little bit about St. Patrick's Day, a little tiny bit about leprechauns, and a lot of bit about the fae nature accessing that other world, Um, some of the trepidations and superstitions around the fairies and the fae. We talk a bit about mushrooms as well, and it's going to be such a great talk. It was so nourishing. I ended that conversation with them, and I was like, I feel like I've been reborn. I just exited the chrysalis, the Celtic chrysalis, and I'm not a butterfly. I'm a fairy. <laughs> That's what it felt like. And but, but before we bring them on, you know what I'd like to do is I like to give an introduction in my own understanding about the topic. And so I'm going to be talking about the Fae. I'm also going to be talking about fairy rings because the tightest, strongest intersection that I could find with 
Celtic or more specifically Irish lore and mycology were fairy rings made of mushrooms. Albeit there are fairy rings and fairy forts made of all different types of natural matter, not just mushrooms. And we're going to talk a little bit about the scientific approach to fairy rings. What do the scientists with their monocles and their microscopes have to say about the fairy rings? Because there's a scientific explanation. But the scientific explanation doesn't dissuade people's superstitions. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and if you go on TikTok and you look up fairy rings, the amount of superstition and like warning signs around like fairy rings, don't touch them, don't enter them. It's it's everywhere. <laughs> and I'm not sure how uh, true TikTok is or how in, how reflective and indicative it is of like the larger culture of the world. Mm, but it was a place I went and looked for well, nuggets uh, on my journey, on my my quest of fairy knowledge. <laughs> um, yeah. And the other thing, do you remember if you listened to the last, uh, or rather the first uh, Mushroom After Hours episode, which was the last episode, that was a more laid back episode where I talked about I was just getting ready to start getting ready for this episode. I was getting ready to get ready, guys. And uh, I was I was trying to get Bob Coran to come onto the podcast because <laughs> he wrote the Irish Field Guide to Fairies and never heard from him, sadly. But I was like, you know, just because he can't come on doesn't mean he can't be here in spirit. And I went and found his book. You know, have you ever gone on archive.org? You can go on there and find tons of books that you can just like, it's like an online library. You can just rent them for an hour or a couple of hours or a week for free. And I found the Irish Field Guide to Fairies. And Bob Coran has a PhD in folklore. I And he's from Ireland. He's from County Down. And if you're Irish and as... As Sorka and Aaron are going to talk about where you're from in Ireland as an Irish person, talking amongst amongst other Irish, it's important to say where you're from. But yes, he's from County Down, and his his book is on the archive. And I was like, this is just it's just here for me. It's just laying out. It's a really easy field guide to read too. If you're interested, if you want to go rent it, you can go on archive.org and look up Irish Field Guide for Fairies by Bob Curran, and it's 80 pages, very easy read but still so so packed with like the most necessary information and what I might argue, pretty accurate information. You know, he's really done his research and he's written so many books, which is why I wanted him on the show. But nonetheless, what we're going to do is we're going to sort of talk, not just sort of, we are going to talk about fairies and the fae. We're going to go through and sort of dispel this sort of Western capitalized quintessential idea of a fairy or Tinkerbell or Pixies, which are not necessarily the same thing as fairies, versus their origins, because <laughs> there's a big disparity there. And I would like us to discuss that. In Bob Coran's book, we're going to go through and we're going to talk about all of it. And I took some notes. I have some thoughts and feelings that you can stew over in your Irish soupy mind. As we touched on in the last episode too, and what is forever going to be a theme of the podcast is the way that we look at, observe, discuss, and remember nature, how we anthropomorphize it, constantly being aware of the humanness that we decide to put onto nature or our own logic that we try to put onto nature, the labels and the boxes and the sort of the scientific approach to nature that's constantly clashing with the irrationality and the overflowingness of nature. I found an amazing paper titled Nature's Invisibilia. And this was, I believe, from like a grad student, but it's as long as a book, basically. It's Nature's Invisibilia, the Victorian Microscope and the Miniature Fairy. Of course, I will be giving all of the sources at the end here. But yes, Nature's Invisibilia, the Victorian Microscope and the Miniature Fairy. And the author is Laura Forsberg. 
and this is from Indiana University Press. She talks about the revivification, revi say that five times fast, the revivification of fairy lore in the 19th century, in the 1800s in Great Britain, and how the Enlightenment period, obviously Christianity, and then these other added layers of the industrial or the encroaching industrial revolution um, and people's sort of desire to swing the pendulum towards logical rationality, scientific method, and how that was clashing up against the naturalist wonder and mystery and the accompanying thousand preceding years of, of lore, how those things clashed and also how they played upon one another um, approaching the 20th century. Uh, with some very, very interesting um, stories and knowledge that I didn't have before that I'll also be sharing so that that can also color in your your perspective before we go into the conversation with Aaron and Sorka. First, a little housekeeping here. I mean, there's not much, but sometimes I get too excited and I won't bring up any housekeeping in the beginning. Um, but I keep a little tab. I keep my eyes on my and my third eye on the stats of the show and more and more people are listening. So new listeners out there, I want to say huge mushroom hello to you mush love to you out there thank you so much for tuning in your ears mean everything to me <laughs> your auditory listening experience is my number one priority and i want you to know that i feel you here even if i don't know you and i don't know where you are i still feel you and i see you and thank you so much for tuning in thanks for honoring our time together here today as far as reviews um yes i will always re I, I would be reading reviews on the podcast if y'all would send me your reviews i'm getting their five-star ratings but here's the thing with spotify if you're listening on spotify you can give the you can give the five stars okay then just go send me an email send me a dm and just be like hey here's my review can you read it on the show i will i totally will because <laughs> one of the things that aaron and sorka and i discuss is how the difference between a live audience versus a podcast audience and still wanting the audience to feel included on the show is something i think is really important which is why i'm always trying to encourage you guys send in your stories send in your revisitations re re what's the word send in corrections send in thoughts feelings send me pictures of your pets or your garden or send me pictures of your mushrooms you know i have that other that other page um, titled at mushroom affirmations you want to see your pictures of mushrooms be affirmed on my mushroom affirmation page send them to me just uh, come and engage with me don't be shy come out of the woodwork i know y'all are there and get involved and get your hands dirty on the podcast okay if you have a foraging story <laughs> i would like to have like a listener's episode where people share with me like their interesting foraging stories or their mushroom synchronicities and i like to compile them eventually and share them with everybody because if I'm having so much fun in the forest by myself, I can only imagine what all of you guys are doing, right? So feel free. I, this is my rather my request for you to reach out and send me emails, send me DMs. Let me know what you're thinking about the podcast. Closer friends and acquaintances, let me know what's going on and what they like about it. But what about all of you who have less, less of a bias towards me? You don't know me that well. What's your impression? So enough word vomit about that. I don't have any corrections from the last episode either. But I'm sure this is the thing. You make the episodes and someone will have a correction from the first episode two years later. So, you know, we'll get there. We cross that bridge when we get to it. Another thing, I'm working on more offerings for all of you outside of the podcast. The one thing I have right now, well, I've been vlogging a little bit, but what I have created is a downloadable, digital downloadable, digitable, digitable downloadable, <laughs> pedophileable. <laughs> Oh my God. Pediophileable. Yeah. Don't quote me on that one. I have a digital download for mushroom stationery and it's mushrooms that I drew myself with Procreate and then 
create it into a, like an A4 or A5 a format for you so you can print it out yourself and take your notes or uh, whether it's your field notes, recipes, grocery lists. I don't do so well with making lists on a phone. I would rather write something down. I'm a bit more tactile like that. And it's $2.50, two doll hairs, two and a half doll hairs is all costs and it's yours for life. That's a pretty good deal. <laughs> I'm working on a bunch of other art, um, lichenology art, mycology art, and working on, well, manifesting a shop for all of that. But it's, it, it, you know, like nature, it, it doesn't happen overnight. But this is my first offering for all of you. So if you'd like to support the show, I don't have a website. I don't have a whole lot of officiality outside of the podcast and Instagram. But you can go and download my Mushroom Stationery and uh, live vicariously through your note writings. And it is, the stationery has little bolets on it. It's different kinds of bolets. And in the description on my Etsy page, I tell you what all the bolets are. And who knows, maybe you take your Mushroom Stationery and you go foraging and then you look at my drawing and you're like, oh, I mean, this is not in any way, shape or form a legitimate way to identify a mushroom, but it sure helps. And so you might find a Sotin's bullet because I drew one. Otherwise, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling pretty fresh. I'm feeling very much like spring is on the way. Honestly, wait, let's backtrack. You know, do you ever have, this is like a neurodivergent thing. Someone's like, how are you doing? But they don't even want an answer. I'm about to tell you my life story. And I will tell you honestly and filterlessly if I have no mask. It has been a very interesting flux, but isn't the energy always in flux? But I think I think the more action that I take in my own personal life, the more accountability I take for things, the more power I feel within myself. And then also like the highs and the lows, the branching and the rooting of my psyche is deepened and grown a lot. And so experiencing that like an expanded version of oneself is kind of a, it's an empowering, but also a pretty crazy ride, like energetically. And I mean, I just be in my house, but it's like the inner world is so different and um, how that reflects in the the podcasting is also pretty cool. And uh, I guess a little nugget of advice is if you have an urge or want or desire to create your own offering for the world, you've been non-existent in this form for most of eternity and you will be non-existent in the form that you have now. You will then be non-existent for the rest of eternity. So why not now? Why not for a little tiny blip in history, you go out and try and make something that other people will enjoy. What else would you be doing? So with that, let's talk about the fairies, the fae, the fairy rings and take a little trip to Ireland today. I hope you enjoy. Let's get into it. I thought the best place to start is with your own current place of understanding when it comes to Celtic lore, Ireland specifically, and like what has been diluted from Irish culture that you've experienced in the West or just across the globe, because St. Patrick's Day has been exported to all corners of the globe, but whether or not it's an accurate reflection of Ireland will be determined by our guest today. <laughs> um, real quick too, and I don't mean to shame you if you or make you feel dumb if you already knew these things, okay? But some of my listeners, and I also come from this background, are from a very insular country that only thinks about itself and no place else, and that would be America. And so when Americans are often asked whether or not Africa is a country or a continent, or which country is Africa in, they don't know how to answer that. And although we can make fun of that, still low key, but geographically Americans, we do be struggling. It's a struggle. So I just want to take a quick moment to geographically lay it out because, you know, it's sort of like when you and two of your friends of another um, ethnicity who speak another language are speaking, you say something in English and then they're speaking in another language and you're sitting there being like, uh-huh, like I totally know what's going on. But it, it could be French. It could be a higher math <laughs> 
it could be something. It could just be really hard to understand. That can happen when people are still speaking English, but they're speaking about a different topic, right? And geographically, Americans, sometimes we have a hard time with it. And I'm not going to judge you because I've been there for like ever until moving to Europe. <laughs> so first things first, I'm the realist. No, first things first, Ireland is not a part of Great Britain. Okay. It's its own island and it's located above Scotland, Wales, and England. But there is a little piece, like what is it? A tiny, pretty tiny piece called Northern Ireland. And that piece is a part of Great Britain, but the rest of Ireland is not. It's got its own culture. It's me slapping my hands around for emphasis. Ireland has its own culture. It is a sovereign state and its capital is Dublin, 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 Dublin. <laughs> and it's easy to understand why they are a sovereign state. They are separate from Great Britain. There's just a different type of energy that the people give off and the land gives off. And if you watch drone footage, I was watching specifically the drone footage of fairy forts, like naturally occurring fairy forts, which are like giant rings of forests that are like literal circles that the many Irishmen believe are where the fairies live. It just has its own vibe. And I would have been quick to put Ireland, Scotland, and England together at, at an earlier point in my life. I just think it's important to say they have their own thing going on and you should keep that in mind. But what about fairy rings and mushrooms? Let's just hit that up first because admittedly this episode is not super mushroom centric, but it, you know, mycelium's running everywhere so indirectly mushrooms always have everything to do with everything in my opinion so that's where we're going to string things together fairy rings in ireland and fairy forts exist in many shapes and sizes and forms they can come in the form of just like a missing patch or a yellowed patch of grass and there's a belief that fairies were dancing there under the moonlight there can be flower rings there can be mushroom rings there can be tree rings or entire forests like fairy forts like i just said entire forests that are in the shape of a circle and they're all over ireland there's approximately 60,000 fairy forts in ireland and if you go look up drone footage of fairy forts in ireland it's pretty spooky and pretty magical but if we think about a mycological fairy fort but scientifically speaking fairy forts mushroom fairy forts what's happening so there are a few things that have to go right in order for a fairy circle to grow above ground. Because even though fairy rings are not uncommon, they don't just happen anywhere. There are a few things one has to consider with the growth pattern of these in a circle. And that would have to do with the soil type, the condition of the soil, the amount of nutrients in the soil, whether or not there are obstructions underground, and then the compo composition of the dirt. And another thing too is that the ground needs to be even and pretty well composed, which is a reason why you'll often see fairy rings pop up on lawns. Now, if you think about hyphae of mycelium or a dish of mycelium, if you look at it in a petri dish, petri dish, petri dish, the mycelium grows radially, outwardly, in every direction, creating what looks like a circle. This is happening underground. So if you've got this, the perfect conditions and flat, even soil, evenly composed soil, that is a really great way for the mycelium to grow upward radially and to then have mushrooms bud off of the hyphae above ground in a radial pattern. And I was wondering too, how, like, do every type of fungi, is every type of fungi capable of creating fairy circles? And to that, I would say it doesn't seem, seem so, but there are about 50 different known species of mushrooms that grow in fairy rings. I'm not going to name all of them, but I'm going to talk just about a few so that you can know that they come in varieties of edible and totally poisonous. <laughs> so tread wisely, but also should you pick a fairy ring mushroom? 
are you going to anger the fairies if you pull a mushroom out of the ground there? I don't know if you do it. Make sure you don't take them all and you say thank you a lot and maybe leave a gift or something. Like that's honestly what I would probably do after knowing what I know about the lore and superstitions around fairies. So you can find the Amanita muscaria, the fly agaric, right? Our universal toadstool mushroom, as we've discussed in many episodes passing. You will find those sometimes in fairy rings. You'll also find the star of amatoxins, Amanita phalloides, okay? The death cap or the death angel destroying death mushroom. (laughs) Death cap and angel destroying mushrooms. Both of these types of amatoxin, highly toxic mushrooms grow in fairy circles. And they often happen to look like another type of mushroom that is widely eaten um, across the globe. And that would be your white button mushroom, which also goes by the name Agaricus campestris, is a widely eaten gilled mushroom closely related to the cultivated button mushroom Agaricus bisporus. It is commonly known as a field mushroom or in North America, a meadow mushroom. Then there are two mushrooms as well. uh, One that is poisonous or one that is toxic and one that is highly edible. And the first one is the Macrolepiota procera, the parasol mushroom, which is the Basidiomycete fungus, which is edible. And that one looks eerily similar to Chlorophyllum molybates, which has the common name of the false parasol, which is the green spored Lepiota as a common name, or the vomiter mushroom. And this is widespread as well. They have kind of shaggy caps. They look very similar on the top. But what will give away the chlorophyllum molybites, or the vomiting one, the one that will make you get sick, has green spores underneath. It's dark and kind of slimy and like looks a little bit sus. But Merasmius oreades, oreades, does not. And Fungi Woman, when she came on the show, also discussed this mushroom. Another mushroom that grows in fairy rings and I brought it up because the name was funny, is called Clitocybe nebularis, or Lapista nebularis. It's commonly known as the clouded agaric, or the cloud funnel. And it's a, an abundant gilled fungus, which appears which appears in both conifer-dominated forests and broadleaf woodland in Europe and North America. Moral of the story is, be careful. I'm not sure whether or not you should actually pick those mushrooms, <laughs> if you're superstitious. Tread wisely, but poisonous and non-poisonous varieties of mushrooms do grow in fairy rings. You know, there are a lot of mythical stories that surround fairy rings. You know, some cultures believe that they're portals to another world where you got to be careful. You step in, you might have some serious lost time. And there are stories of that happening to people, which is crazy. Some say that these mushroom rings are the dining room table for fairies and that these mushroom rings grow because of fairies dancing, which if we go back to the scientific explanation, if we oscillate between the two here, when the soil is evenly composed and the reason why the grass will get eaten away in a circle is because right below ground, that fungi, that the hyphae of the mycelium are soaking up the nutrients of the grass that's right above it before it grows. So even when the mushrooms leave, you'll still, still sometimes see a ring of either brown or eaten out or like depleted grass is because the fungi are taking the nutrients from that area of the circle of the fairy ring. Another fun thing about fairy rings is that they actually grow bigger. If left undisturbed, they will grow bigger and bigger and bigger in their rate, in their diameter and their radius <laughs> every single year. The largest one being about 600 meters wide in France. So you might not actually even know that you enter that fairy ring and good luck. Some folklore stories go that you should never step into a fairy ring because you might become invisible 
or become trapped there forever. Or the fairies might trap you and I'll let you leave. That's our crash course on the mycology of fairy rings. Now let's talk a little bit about, or a lot of bit about fairies in the Fae. Bob Coran's book, The Field Guide to Fairies left me a little bit stunned because I had such an internalized belief of what I thought fairies were. And it was very much like that pixie looking Tinkerbell, the very benevolent looking woodland creature who is singing cute songs and brushing her cute hair and living her best life and is very, very benevolent. I also thought that fairies were just specifically one type of creature. Like they kind of look like humans, of varying sizes and that was about it but bob coran has some news for you and it's that fairies come in all shapes and sizes okay and they aren't all pretty <laughs> but we have definitely sanitized and pre-packaged the world of the fae in so many different palatable ways that it's no surprise that i was surprised and it would be no surprise to me if you listening to this now are surprised but i want you to know a little bit more about the world of fairies as they have been more originally believed and when i say originally believed these are stories that were written down around the time of christianity and so many of these beliefs and the lore are like woven into and out of christianity and you know a lot of these creatures that bob Quran writes about they are mischievous they cause trouble they're bad they do horrible things sometimes and on every page of my notes because i took a lot of notes uh, so i could reflect with you all is that the one way to get rid of them is to infuse the clergy across some gold a prayer something very christian or catholic rather um you need to infuse that if you want to get rid of them. You can vanquish them, vanquish the pagan by bringing in the the the, the structured religion, right? That's a, that's a lot of the play back and forth between the two. They're very afraid of that, right? They being the Fae. The Fae seem to be afraid. They're, trepid, they're trepidating all over the clergy. Now there are about nine, we're gonna go through the book with my own words, okay? There are a lot of different types of fairies here. There's the Grogook, and if you're Irish, feel free to write in and read me the filth for my pronunciation, but you know, we got what we got. You get what you get and you don't get upset, okay? The Grogach, the Gray Man, the Shiri, Changelings, the Puka, the Marrows, the Banshee, the Leprechaun, and the Dulahan, the Dulahan. And he also has some lesser known Irish fairies as well, but I don't think we'll have time to get to them today. And when I describe these, a lot of these have absolutely nothing to do with your typical idealized quintessential fairy, but they are considered fairies in Ireland. Therefore, we shall discuss. Bob Coran writes that fairies are neither good nor bad, but there's some place in between in a hidden world that's right next to our own. And it is believed that the patron saint of all fairies is named St. Michael. And it was he who interceded on behalf of the fairies with God to offer them a place on earth versus in hell, uh, where they are allowed to hide in the dark and hidden places of the world. They're, to be, they're kind of banished from all realms besides our own, but we can't even see them either. But I guess that was better than the hellfire. There, some of them have, are even gone to the depths of the ocean, which we'll talk a little bit about the merfolk and the marrows in a little bit. Some are under the earth, like goblins and trolls. Some are in the air, like spirits and shiris. And some are in the harsh and barren areas of the countryside, like leprechauns and grogics. In some theories, fairies are believed to have come from the Tuatha de Denon, which is Gaelic for the people of the goddess Danu. 
and in Celtic mythology, this was a race that was inhabiting Ireland before the arrival of the ancestors of modern Ireland. And it was believed that the Tuatha de Denon came to Ireland from ancient Greece and brought with them skills and magic that was far advanced for that particular age. Fairies are known as being spiteful and jealous of mankind for having a relationship with God, which they cannot have because they've been banished, they've been othered, they've been deemed not worthy, but humans have the capacity to be worthy. And also it is believed in more structured religions too, that humans are the most superior race because we have the free will to decide to choose whether or not we will worship the divine versus every other being that was created has a compulsion to do so. Angels have the compulsion to do so. Uh, animals have the compulsion. The plants and the trees are con in constant worship of the divine, but it is humans that have the ability to sort of trance in and out of that worship and decide whether or not they be even believe in it in the first place, which can make our rewards greater in the next life if we decide to, despite the free will to believe. That can be a general belief across religions, but for fairies, they don't really even have the option. But in some religions, it is a belief that it is humans and also beings in the other realm that do have the free will to believe in God. But that might not always be fairies because I believe that the world next door is like an ecology, an ecology of souls. And Terrence McKenna has once said that as well. There's an ecology of expansive beings in the realm right next to ours. And who knows what's going on there, right? But in Irish mythology, it is believed that many of these fairies are very spiteful and jealous and apprehensive towards humans because of their relationship to God. <laughs> smells like Christianity to me. Bob Cran also thought it necessary or apt to include a quote from a medium from Dublin who channeled the claimed queen of fairies. And this was also quoted from the Irish poet W.B. Yeats. And she said, when speaking of our understanding of an interest in fairies, be careful and do not seek to know much about us, <laughs> exclamation point. So with that in mind, Let's learn everything about them and be as interested in them as possible. <laughs> the first fairy we have is called the Groguk. And at first this reminded me of Gru from the Avengers. And it also reminded me of Grogu, Baby Yoda. And Baby Yoda very much seems like this very sanitized virgin. Virgin? Yes, virgin. Well, I think Gro Baby Grogu is also a virgin. But the version of this Groguk we see in, in Disney, right? With Star Wars, which Baby Yoda is very much this tiny old man figure. So let me describe the Grogu and I'll explain why I think we might have gotten Grogu or Baby Yoda from that. The Grogu is a half human, half fairy Aborigine who settled in Ireland. He is described as an elderly human man and there's never females that are described. Although the description of them sounds like what we might describe as a haggard witch in a way, although the Grogu doesn't seem to have the same types of attributes that we might attribute to a witch. But I kind of thought appearance wise, Sometimes the really haggard witches in a hut kind of look like the Grogik. They are thought of to have the height of a small child and they're naked but covered in coarse reddish hair or fur. And they're not noted for their personal hygiene. But unlike other fairies, they're wholly benevolent, incredibly industrious. They're like working all the time. They always have like a bar with a pail, two pails of milk over their shoulders and they're just like walking up and down the hill. They're taking a brick from one side of the road and dragging it, or no, like a cinder block. They're like taking a cinder block from one side of the road and dragging it to the other side of the road and then dragging it back again all day. That's kind of the vibe I get from the Grogu. They're very nice 
as was said, extremely industrious, but yet as poor as a church mouse and have no want for a gift outside of a dish of milk. And if you try to gift them anything, they'll run away and cry. And whether or not they're running away and crying because they don't feel worthy of the gift or because their intentions are so pure that they have no want to do anything for the return of anything to them is also something that's up for debate. They don't really need any sleep or food. They're kind of like the extremophiles of fairies. They have the power of invisibility, but towards the people they trust, they will show themselves to those people. They're also described as sometimes being helpful to a nuisance, like to an extreme, like they're almost annoying and they often get very attached to humans. And sometimes fear of the clergyman, bring the clergy into your home and tell them to get out. Then they'll scuttle away, but they'll maybe go work in the garden versus shuffling under your feet in the kitchen. That's a grogook. The next is the gray man. And Bob Coran writes that no fairy is more mysterious or sinister than him. He's also titled, one of his common names is Old Boneless. And oftentimes he's described more than anything as a thick clinging fog, kind of like a low hanging stratus cloud or a very thick mist. He's also been titled Old Weather and is believed to maybe have been an old Celtic storm god, by coastal communities in 1500 BCE. But his, his amorphous figure has become anthropomorphized into something of a walking foggy man. Like he oscillates between this amorphous blob of fog to a more structured being in uh, cloaks of hazy garb. <laughs> and uh, it is said he sustains himself on the chimney smoke of houses. Delicious. He smells musty and unpleasant heavy wood smoke and cold clamming air can be indicative of his presence and what he loves more than anything is the loss of human life so what he might do is play silly little tricks that end in destruction and death of humans like obscuring rocks so that shipwrecks might occur or obscuring a road so someone gets lost i also kind of thought of the titanic was it old boneless that led to the fate of the Titanic? We may never know. But you might not be able to escape him even if you're indoors because he's known for turning milk sour and blackening and rotting potatoes. He might also take your Tinder and dampen it, not the app. He might take your woodland tinder and dampen it so when you try to light a fire you can't and you freeze to death. He's also been attributed for afflictions to the body like colds, sore throats, the flu, Miss Coronas that you Mr. Boneless's Corona. And how do we get rid of him? Say it with me. The clergy. When, when old Boneless comes, hide your kid, hide your wife, and grab your crosses and utterances of the Lord, because that might keep him at bay. But for how long? We may never know. For added measure, holy water. There's also belief that the gray man or old Boneless likes to terrorize or maybe from his perspective, play with weary travelers. So in Antrim in Ireland, don't need to know necessarily where that is, but there's a place called Antrim. Here there was a rock bridge constructed that is specifically for the gray man. And this is so that the gray man can walk his walk and stay in his lane and you can stay in yours because even glimpsing at the gray man could end up, could end you up in a whole world of misfortunes. Next up we have the Shiri. These land Shiri, there's land Shiri and then there's water Shiri. We're gonna talk about the difference between both of them and they're found all over Ireland. And in some Irish counties, they're considered to be quote unquote, infallible harbingers or harbingers of ill omen, 
ill luck and death. They are amused by sorcery and might also lead astray those unaware of their own surroundings. So in some ways, it sounds like they might be good friends with the old gray man. They kind of give off shenanigans energy, but like, oopsies, did you die because you came into my bog? Sorry. The descriptions of them vary a little bit. So sometimes they're described kind of as this floating beam of light, but not like a super luminescent light. Bob Cran titles them the corpse candles. Like they're kind of glowing, but like in a very sallow and freakish way. You would not believe your eyes. 10 million fireflies. Owl City, those were Sherry, and you might want to run in the other direction. Because if you get too close, you might really make that literal. You will not be able to believe your eyes because you won't have eyes to believe with. You know what I mean? It was believed that the Sherry might be unbaptized children or stillborns trying to return to the mortal world, but have found themselves stuck in some dark energy of slimy fairy magic and misfortune. They are described as the most unusual and potentially the most dangerous of all fairies. But sometimes, like we said, they're nothing more than floating glimmers of light or like little children with baby faces and small. <laughs> it is believed that the land sherry were most active during periods of pre-Christian festivals like Beltane and Samhain. Did I say that correctly? Beltane is like the spring festival and Samhain is Halloween, I believe. And the water sherry are found in bogs and swamps and they're trying to lead you to your death in the bog. So if you go to a bog and you see floating light above the bog, don't go close because death could be imminent. And both water and land sherry are not capable of human speech, but they do have shrill, high-pitched sounding um, screams, wails, moans that one might pass off as maddening tinnitus, make you go mad. The appearance of the, of the sherry, as we said, can oscillate between a corpse candle flickering firefly question mark to looking like little elves with small children's faces with a dull corpsey sheen. Now the changeling has a very interesting story and history that I will be talking about with Arn and Sorka a little bit later, but the changelings were believed to be the offspring of fairies. But in this situation, we're thinking of the beautiful, highly aesthetic fairies of nature who happens to birth an ugly, ugly, ugly thing and wishes to swap it for a healthy baby in real life. This would maybe account for, and does account for, children born, perhaps they were born seemingly normal, but as they age, there was something wrong with them, or if they were born with a range of visible abnormalities. It was believed that a, uh, a baptized child was a safe child for not becoming or being swapped with a changeling, but an unbaptized child and a very beautiful child could then be changed into a changeling, right? Could be swapped out with a changeling. This also kind of reminds me of like Nazar or the evil eye that you don't want to compliment and they'd say don't compliment very beautiful babies, just like leave them be. You might know that you have a changeling if you have a howling baby or a sudden change in temperament. And there were three different types of changelings. There were fairy children, senile fairies, or inanimate objects, AKA stock, which to me could indicate what we might consider neurodivergent or autistic children, or sometimes children that are born with interesting and uncommon abnormalities that make them look like old men. Um, or inanimate objects, which I think would account for maybe nonverbal autism, for example, like the children that seem very checked out, like, well, like autism and the conversations around autism are and like healthy conversations around autism and inclusive conversations around autism are, is, is like such a new, new thing back in the day. There was no conversation around that. And if your child had a form of autism where they were expressing traits of not being verbal, not being responsive to their own names, 
they might be considered stock. Another way you might know you have a changeling is if they have dark, wise eyes, full set of teeth, tiny chicken legs, and hands like bird talons. And it's also stated that changelings might have a high aptitude for music and the arts, and even to the level of a savant. Changelings are also depicted as having uh, insatiable appetites, but they're never full, but they also never grow. Oftentimes, changelings die between ages of one to three years old, but sometimes there are adult changelings that are also titled fairy doubles, where, whereby they look like their normal selves, but they have something of what is described a sour disposition, where they might be cold, aloof, and have no interest in friends or family a marked personality change, and marked signs of autism. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the history of the despicable means of ridding a changeling, which I don't feel very comfortable talking about, but just know that there's a very dark history in Ireland of trying to get rid of changelings, and whether or not they're a real thing or just a way of anthropomorphizing the taboos of neurodivergency and deformities and disabilities of children, that's up for you to decide and research. The next is the puka. Now, the puka, they are kind of this catch-all term for different sightings and visual forms of fairies, okay? It says that no fairy is more feared in Ireland than the puka. This might be due to the fact that they're always out and about after nightfall and they create harm and mischief and try to lure people out of their homes. Sometimes they destroy your crops. They're also up to shenanigans. And the, and the puka is described as many different manifestations. It can manifest as a hairy boogeyman, as a black goat or ram with horns, or a black dark stallion, like a horse. And the puka were often blamed for agricultural misfortunes and for travelers' misfortunes. And still to this present day, there are places in Ireland where you leave a little bit of your harvest then that is titled the puka's share. That is for the puka so that they don't mess with your they don't mess with your crops in the future. The puka have human speech and they might be able to speak out the names of those that they wish to cause harm to or wish to come with them. They're also known as property vandals. There's a Scandinavian word called the puk, puka, which is called the nature spirit. And I also think it's interesting that the word puke <laughs> is spelled the same as puka, which, you know, I guess puking is kind of a mischievous and not great activity. With a puka, they need constant placation, constantly placating. This is where this idea of like telling them that they're the good people, there's nothing wrong with them, we're trying to placate them, they're constantly angry and jealous, just try to keep the peace peacekeeping with them is like a constant upkeep. Now, one of the manifestations of the puka has to do with the horse, and it has something to do with a, a, an ancient Celtic horse cult, um, where these members of this cult would meet up the top of a mountain called Brilachlin Mountain, which was, which was also known the peak of the speaking horse. And there was a waterfall there called Puka's Hole, although not all of the pukas that be are necessarily malevolent. Some might be helpful and want to give advice. Bob Cran writes, in some areas of the country, the puka is rather more mysterious than it is dangerous, provided it is treated with proper respect. The puka may even be helpful on occasion, issuing prophecies and warnings where appropriate. For example, the folklorist Douglas Hyde referred to a plump, sleek, terrible steed which emerged from a hill in Leinster and which spoke in a human voice to the people there on the first day of November. It was accustomed to give intelligent and proper answers to those who consulted it concerning all that would befall them until November the next year, and the people used to leave gifts and presents at the hill. Next up we have the Marrows. 
not to necessarily be confused with mermaids specifically, because marrows are believed to not have a fish tail, but rather sort of scuba flipper feet and webbed fingers. Marrows, otherwise called silkies and sometimes mermaids, marrow roughly translates to sea maiden. And these are like the fairy inhabitants of the sea, of inhabitants of the land beneath the waves. And they're able to live on land and sea. They're amphibious. And some people claim to be descendants of them. They are sometimes seen wearing a red cap of feathers and a specific type of garb. And there are stories, and I feel like this story kind of shows like the myth or the manifestation of women who are unsatisfied in their marriages and like how sometimes women would just get fed up and leave i was wondering if that was a story that got tied into the ideas of the merfolk and that like these women just aren't of this world they're of this world in another world and they're not understood here and they're dissatisfied so they feel allured by the land they're allured by the official outer world but then they come and they live it and they're like this isn't so great i want to go back to the sea and that's kind of like this mythological overtone right in some stories she is known to have a special sea cloak that the fishermen who wish to marry her will steal from her and then hide so that she might marry them it was in some stories she might leave her children behind and go back to the sea and sometimes a marrow wife although she might be good at cooking and cleaning comes off as a bit cold and aloof marrows are not always to be spoken of as dissatisfied wives sometimes they were children who were caught in some type of nautical disaster and instead of believing that they may be drowned or passed away at sea that they were actually taken to live with the merfolk one of these merfolk that was a child uh, bob coran writes was saint mergen a holy woman who lived in the north of ireland during the sixth century originally a human girl named liban she lived with her parents on the coast of scotland during a storm her parents were drowned and she was carried and she was carried away by a severe flood many years later the date given is 588 she was caught in nets placed across belfast low in the intervening period she had lived with marrows under the sea she later changed her name to mergen accepted christianity and performed many healing miracles throughout ireland when she died, she was buried in St. Cuthbert's Church at Dunluce in North Antrim, where a seashell motif on her tomb still marks her years amongst the merfolk. But of course, would any of these fairies be what they are if there weren't some who were the harbingers of death? And yes, sometimes mermaids or marrow women or marrow people sitting on rocks nearby would indicate an impeding or incoming oncoming death. It's written here that um, it should not be assumed that these merfolk are kindly or well disposed towards mortals. They do have a natural antipathy towards humans and it is said that marrows will only marry humans so that their children might have a chance at reaching heaven by virtue of having human blood in their veins so that they might not fear the clergy. Bob Cran writes, it is therefore unwise to fall asleep close to the seashore without some form of protection, such as a crucifix or medallion in case the sea folk attempt to drown the sleeper by dragging him under the waves moreover if you have to sleep on the beach then it is advisable to sleep within the sound of a church bell since the sound will drive away the malignant sea folk no marrow will enter a church so it is also reasonable to assume safety within the precincts from her attentions yes you ever see a marrow on a rock and she's brushing her hair and she's fluttering her eyes at you it might be too good to be true kind of like the fireflies owl city just like the corpse candles above the bogs the water sherry and the marrows they only want one thing and it's your peril the next is the banshee and this one is interesting you know my own insular self i'd always heard the word banshee and i heard like scary stories spoken of the banshee the wailing woman but i never necessarily stopped to think that this might be the 
um, mythologized version of a seeress or a prophetess or a woman with a second sight. But the Banshee is most well known as a seeress who, who spoke of the future. The Banshee can come in three forms, as a young woman, a stately matron, or a sort of ragged old woman. This, and these can represent the three Celtic goddesses of war and death. They're known to be seen wearing cloaks and robes, and sometimes they're depicted as washing something, like washing blood off of some type of textile. And they have sort of death wayshower energy. Reminds me of Jungian psychology and Clarissa Pinke Estes discussing death as a woman and how we find the manifestation of death looking like a woman across cultures. So I'm not surprised to be reading that the Banshee is kind of the representation of that, in my opinion. But yes, she signals death through her wails, and oftentimes she's the scary screaming woman in the mirror, in the window, that scary movie you watched and you were brushing your teeth and you shut the cabinet mirror and there she is screaming behind you. Kind of like that energy. Next up we have the Lurican, the Leprechaun, who is described as a diminutive man functioning as a shoemaker who's a bit of a drunkard and a bit of a miser. <laughs> He's also known as the banker of the fairy world. You'll often find them, therefore, in a in an. You'll often find them, therefore, in an intoxicated state, caused by the consumption of their their brews, their brewery of their beverage choice. No accounts of female leprechauns, but they are extremely secretive about their origins. No one's ever seen a leprechaun procreate. Kind of like how we don't know how some mushrooms or some truffles sporulate and procreate. Very very secretive practice there. Bob Cran writes, leprechauns tend to avoid contact with humans. They do this because they regard them as foolish, flighty creatures, and also because they fear that humans may steal the treasures which they so carefully guard. And moreover, despite their squat and stocky build, the leprechaun is incredibly sprightly and can move quicker than the human eye can see. Most humans only catch a fleeting glimpse as he skips out of their line of vision behind a tree or under a bush. If caught by a mortal, he will promise great wealth if allowed to go free. However, you must never take your eye off him, for he can vanish in, in an instant, leaving the watcher astonished at his alacrity. And lastly, we have the Dullahan, the headless horseman, the black-robed horseman, or a bastardized derivative might be Nicolas Cage, the ghost rider. The Dullahan is uh, believed to have maybe been the ancient Celtic god, the Black Krom, who was a fertility god that required sacrifices and preferred decapitation. He is also death's herald. With the Dullahan, I'm sorry, what Bob Cran wrote was some of the most amazing literature I've ever read. <laughs> so I do want to read this one, and then that's it for all of our fairy beings, okay? Dullahans are headless. Although the Dullahan has no head upon its shoulders, he carries it with him, either on a saddle brow of his horse or upraised in his right hand. Get this, the head is the color and texture of stale dough and moldy cheese, and quite smooth. A hideous, idiotic grin splits the face from ear to ear, and the eyes, which are small and black, dart about like malignant flies. This is a literary masterpiece. The entire head glows with the phosphorescence of decaying matter, and the creature may use it as a lantern to guide its way along the darkened laneways of the Irish countryside. Wherever the Dullahan stops, a mortal dies. The Dullahan is possessed of supernatural sight. By holding his severed head aloft, he can see for vast distances across the countryside, even on the darkest night. Using this power, he can spy the house of a dying person, no matter where it lies. Those who watch from their windows to see him pass are rewarded for their pains by by having a basin of blood thrown in their faces or by being struck blind in one eye. And it's not necessarily that he's killing a person, the Dulhan. It's more that he knows when someone's dying and he's showing up. He's there, he's noting that it is happening, and he's he's coming. 
he's doing it. He's there. He is here to collect you. <laughs> he didn't do it, but he knew where to be at the right place at the right time because he could hold his head up really high to see anywhere in Ireland. Now, with all that in mind, I hope that was an enjoyable journey for you as it was for me. I'm happy to share. And this will be great context when we join our conversations with uh, Sorka and Aaron in just a little bit. Now, Something else I wanted us to touch on before our conversation is to go back to this idea of how is to go back to how we diluted and sort of recaptured the enchanting nature of the Fae. Now, lastly, before we bring our guests on today, I want to talk about the devolution, if you will, slash arguably the reinvigoration. Uh, and mix-up mashup of fairies in the Victorian era in the 19th century, in the good old 1800s, a time I probably wouldn't have wanted to live in because they were so close to modernity, but not quite there. You were so close, honey, but not yet. So going back to this, I'm going to be relying kind of heavily on this paper from Laura Forsberg, Nature's Invisibility of the Victorian Microscope and the Miniature Fairy. But hey, this whole paper was written for this podcast episode. I'm like fully convinced. <laughs> She did an amazing job drawing parallels, like explaining historically the devolution of fairies and myth in Great Britain, away from Ireland, and the reasons why, and also how scientists and writers sort of played off of one another, the dreamers and the doers, you know, if you will, kind of danced together to sort of wax and wane the presence of fairy and myth. After this, we will talk with uh, Sorka and Erin Hegarty in a great discussion to wrap everything up about fairies, the fae, and fairy rings. In an 1858 short story entitled The Diamond Lens, the Irish author Fitzjames O'Brien describes a half-mad scientist, Lindley, who develops a super-powerful microscope with a massive 140-carat diamond lens. Gazing through his new instrument, Lindley discovers an exquisite female creature whom he names Animula. Animula is never called a fairy, but she clearly is one. Her signature characteristics, including the extreme delicacy of her features, the supple grace of her motions, and the sexual coyness of her manner, all point to her fairy nature. And Lindley repeatedly refers to her as a sylph. Completely infatuated, Lindley becomes disillusioned with the world of full-size life and repelled by human women, including the renowned ballerina who plays a fairy at the ballet. He begins to spend all his time gazing at Animula, unable to tell her of his love. One day, he sees Animula suddenly writhing in agony, and as he watches her die, he realizes that the water of the slide has dried up. She has been killed by his scientific instrument and by his lustful self-preoccupation. And if you didn't know what a sylph is, it is believed to be an air spirit, which can be akin to one of our more palatable versions of fairies. But the reason why I'm bringing up this story specifically is that it opens up a conversation about how we perceive nature and how we get preoccupied with our ideas of nature and also more specifically how in the Victorian era with the the advent of the microscope that we were able to see a world that had been otherwise hidden to us that we knew was scientifically with our own eyes we could see that it was there but always hidden out of plain sight based on its size right its scale but that this hidden world that was revealed to us through microscope was also easy to play off of with a naturalist approach in nature and also with our belief around myth and the fae because they are also hidden someplace in plain sight as well. And throughout the 19th century, approaching the Industrial Revolution, right before Peter Pan and Tinkerbell's advent, there was a very interesting sort of push and pull between 
this need for logic and scientific method, methodological, methodological approaches to discovering nature versus the sort of nostalgic yearning to preserve the old mythological approaches. So in this tale by the Irish author O'Brien, he's exposing what we might consider a paradoxical effect of the microscope because it's introducing the user to this microscopic world that otherwise seems far off, kind of like the cosmos, but it, it is right in the palm of our hand. The protagonist, Lindley, despairs of ever reaching this little fairy under the microscope, Animula. It's as if he were gazing through a telescope to another planet. And what is concerning is that although she couldn't seem more distant from him, she dies because of his lack of care because he's, he's more preoccupied with what he thinks he's seeing and how it serves him versus how she actually exists and what she needs from us in order to thrive. And it's because he got too close to her and that he put her under scrutiny that she actually died. That it was better, maybe, if we listened to the Dublin medium who said, don't learn too much about us, don't get too close to us because to know us is to destroy us, maybe? That's kind of the vibe I got from the intro to the story. And it's interesting because during this time of the Victorian era, there was a scrutinization of the fairy. The fairies started to get smaller and smaller. No longer were they of nearly the same stature and size as regular humans. They were getting tiny, almost to the size of a pixie, which if you were also wondering, what's the difference between a pixie and our quintessential fairy? Pixies are believed to be even tinier like much smaller. Over pagan traditions, Celtic mythology, the fairy was a very powerful creature, right? We talked, it could have even been descended from one of the gods in paganism. But by the 19th century, the fairy was this tiny little winged, you know, creature that was floating around on flower beds and on toadstools, doing very cute kind of male gaze stuff, very coy, wearing a very short little fairy skirt, a little fairy tail, and meager, impish, unsure of herself, pure, you know? But at the same time, being able to look under a microscope to see the world of bacteria and algae and things like that was very exciting and it was an opportunity for writers to on the other hand use mythology to explain science because mythology is a very powerful way to cement things into the psyche. Forsberg writes about this term and I'm not sure if she coined it herself but she coins a term called the ironic imagination and the way I would describe it, the use of or the the idea of the ironic imagination is being able to explore fiction lore and mythos in a highly logical and rational way without negating a scientific approach to the world. One can still heartily acknowledge the invisibility and unprovability of enchanting scapes and beings while also participating in the creation and pro proliferation of that lore. It's like dissonance. You can kind of have your cake and eat it too. And I found it a little funny and ironic actually that approaching the end of the 18th and going into the 19th century in Great Britain anyway, there was a huge wane in interest and true belief in fairies that had existed for thousands of years. This wonder was fettering off. When British society started to urbanize and become more industrial, there was also an increasing emphasis on the scientific empiricism and scientific discourse, right? Syllogistic thought, if then, therefore, we have the data or we don't have the data. There was like a sobering up of society, a coming out of the clouds of the psyche of the collective in British society at that time. Because 
they had things to invent. They needed a better quality uh, way of life. You know, in the 1850s, people were defecating in downtown London, like in the streets. Like it was pretty important that they got a sewage system. So people were like, let's figure this out. And then fairies were like, not the most important thing. But it's also funny to think that people at that time were disenchanted but also didn't have the modernity that we have now. It's almost like hard to believe that they wouldn't still believe in that stuff. Like maybe just, but like, I guess in urban areas, there was a falling away of that. The countryside, it was still alive and well, but such an interesting time. Like in 1800s, you can't believe in mythology and you also can't have a a working toilet until the end of the century. (laughs) Wouldn't want to, like I said, wouldn't want to live there. You're so close, but not quite. But then there's the difference between the scientist and the naturalist, right? The scientist might look down and find numbers and quantifiable actions and experiments, but the naturalist might look into a microscope and see a fairy world where you could anthropomorphize the bacteria and the the way that it moves and the way that it fights and the way that it makes love is like that of, well, maybe humans and also of the fairy world. And naturalists at the time wanted to use this sort of pivotal moment to recall people back to nature at that time, right? That we could re-enchant the world by seeing these, sci- the, this, these scientific discoveries under the microscope um, in an enchanted way. It was like naturalists wanted to create, as Forsberg says, a miniature frontier of enchantment. Because you can get excited by both. You can get excited about scientific discoveries under the microscope. You can get excited about the fact that it reminds you of the fairy world. So there were those in the 19th century that were looking to push away and to anthropomorphize and to archive fairies as something of the past. And then there was people on the other side of the line that were saying, no, this is a way that we can almost prove that there is this enchantment, that there is this world of fairies, because look at how magical we can find things that actually exist with our own eyes. And this exists, then if then therefore, then this could be indicative of the proof of the fae. And then Forsberg quotes a different author who speaks of and laments of losing the belief in the fairy world. He asks, what Shakespeare of the future will think of giving us a bacteriological midsummer night's dream? <laughs> what are we gonna do? Well, how can we replace? Because he's a fe- he's fearing that fairies are gonna be replaced by bacteria, like, and it's not nearly as romantic, it's not nearly as amazing and mystifying. But actually, it's interesting that she brought up Shakespeare because William Shakespeare first conceived of a miniature fairy, the sort of palatable fairy, if you will, in Mercury. Lucio's Queen Mab speech in Romeo and Juliet in 1597, in which he conjures this vivid image of Mab's minute size, Mab is the fairy, in shape no bigger than an agate stone on the forefinger of an alderman. <laughs> and that was in 1597. So even years before, you know, hundred, a few hundred years before the 19th century, Shakespeare was already, ironically, miniaturizing the fairy. But right at the turn of the 20th century, as the Victorian era was kind of winding down, Peter Pan was written and Tinkerbell basically took the front and center stage of people's psyche at that time. And along with that was our perceived belief in fairies had to do everything to do with Tinkerbell and this idea of the Tinkerbell effect or the reverse Tinkerbell effect. In renditions of Peter Pan, When Tinkerbell was dying, the only way to bring her back to life was to believe in her. So the audience of children would be asked do you believe in Tinkerbell? Clap if you believe in Tinkerbell. And everyone would clap and agree. And it, that was what would bring Tinkerbell back to life. It was the belief in the collective, putting attention and focus and 
like mutual agreement on this being real, on Tinkerbell being real. And so that's what brought her in. But when people didn't believe in her, believe in fairies, then that phenomenon wouldn't be in people's conscious consciousness people wouldn't be aware of it so it couldn't exist if no one were there to observe it right and in modern the modern day we have the idea of the tinkerbell effect that the more that people believe something together the more true it is one of these things of the tinkerbell effect could be money we all have agreed upon that money means something and it has value even if it's intangible now most of the time or it is if it is tangible it's just colorful paper or it's on a card or it's in a bank account being moved around or maybe nowadays it's crypto but we've all agreed that it has value that's like the tinkerbell effect but then there's the idea of the tinkerbell effect that the more that people collectively believe something the less true it is and an example of that might be well we believe that the roads are safe to drive on and oh this particular route is not is not dangerous <laughs> but if everybody finds out that that particular route's not dangerous then everyone's driving on that route and then there's more likelihood of crashes because there are more cars there and one of the reasons why we see this particular phenomenon of the tinkerbell effect is so that it saves our brain time we experience the effect of the, of the tinkerbell effect nearly constantly because our brains will create and fill in information to speed up perception and decision making. That's also why we label things. Our brains are lazy misers themselves, okay? We are we have leprechauns in our mind. Our brains have a lot to process in a day and they're always subconsciously there. Yes, they, our brain pronoun is they. Um, yes, our queer minds are always looking to save, save time, save money, get the low, best low rate. For the great low rate you can get online, go to the general and save some time. That is our brain. Okay, that's our brains. You know, we don't have time to process and see everything. In an article I wrote, there's an expert that says, we do not have the time to process and see everything, but based on belief, we can surmise the existence of many environmental elements from habitual experience or the shared experience of others. So I think that's a pretty important element to mythology is the collective agreed belief in it. It's not just ascribing, prescribing meaning to it. It's prescribing a belief. And when we have a belief, we have an expectation of what we'll see in the future. It also reminds me of Slenderman. Do you, you know, like that's that scary online game that ended up um, with two girls in Milwaukee. This is like a little gore forewarning. But those two girls that, you know, were having a sleepover and then they stabbed another girl and they said Slenderman made them do it. And then you're like, well, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Like, was Slenderman already in the ether like were we already subconsciously aware of it or was it not real until we decided to speak about it out loud and share media about it and to share lore about it that little girls saw a manifestation of slenderman that told them to do this horrible thing and then it got me thinking about you know the origins of myth and the origins of thought and how because we have this need to individuate ourselves from the whole and we have to feel that we are so distinct from everything around us that we get so surprised by mythology, we get so surprised by the existence of lore or the belief in magic when we are actively the ones thinking about it in the first place. Like we are an integral part of the experience of that phenomenon because it takes our observation and conversation and integration of that information. <laughs> that should be a wrap. Um, it takes, it has everything to do with us because we are the ones observing it. You know, it is enigmatic that we have human bodies able to process the thoughts about this stuff. And that is part of the creation of the myth in and of itself. And maybe, this is my own speculation, word vomit, it is 
us having an imagination. Like sometimes we like to think that, oh, it's just a figment of her imagination. And we like to downplay it kind of the way we have created fairies to become now these very diminutive little creatures that to sort of gaslight our own imaginations and to belittle them and to say that, oh, well, it's just their imagination. Well, what if that inner sight is our access to the other realm? Like we're constantly connected to it, but because we can't see it in the three-dimensional world immediately when we have a thought that it is supposed to be something other. And then if our if our minds are in our imagination, it's just a highly sophisticated computer or something that we've generated these images on our own from folly out of nowhere, which feels very unnatural to me as a self-proclaimed naturalist myself. And when you talk to people in Ireland and you watch videos about the Fae and the fairies, I read a, a book uh, as well all about the Celtic faith and fairies. And the belief is so prominent, so, so prevalent in Ireland. And that's really what keeps it alive. So what would it be if no one were there to prescribe meaning to it? You know what I mean? If there wasn't a collective belief in it and the fairies were trying to act out, but nobody paid attention. Same thing too, like your ENTP friends, your logical friends who just are like, no, I don't believe in it. I know, I don't know. They're like anything that does happen that could be in that realm wouldn't be something that they'd pick up on. <laughs> but if you stop and you're like, wait, we all have this, we, we all believe that this is something that can happen, that if something bad does happen, we're all collectively prescribing that, you know, prescribing that event to the lore. So it, it kind of comes back down to that Tinkerbell effect too, like, and your own perception, like, I guess it's, there's a lot of power in collective agreed upon meanings and belief, which is probably why religions and schools of thought are so popular. It is very powerful to have everyone kind of being on the same page about something. And it's also, it also uh, jogs my memory about how different cultures that have different beliefs and different mythological beings will have recorded sites and interventions with that that lore but they won't have interventions with lore from other places if they're not aware of it like inuit lore is something else like we're going to be getting into indigenous first nation and you know like or even aboriginal beliefs we're going to be getting into that in the Inuit, they're not messing around, okay? They have, I almost don't want to learn about it because I'm like, if I believe in this or if I have any thought that a collection of people believe in the lore of the Inuit, like I'm going to have some Inuit <laughs> encounters or something. So maybe that's maybe that's also another layer of the, the Dublin medium that says, don't learn anything about us because if you, if you think about us and you learn about us, then you'll believe in us and then you'll see us. And then I thought like as someone who's just learning about it now, I'm like, is this legal? Should I be learning about this? Because then I got an idea. I'm like, well, maybe I should build a fairy house and offer it to the forest. And I was like, no, because then what if I get bad fairy luck? See, because now suddenly I'm tapping into all of the superstitions about it because a lot of people believe in that. Or now I'm going to maybe, what if I go into the forest now and something happens or I see something because I did this podcast? I was like, hmm. I guess I'm metaphorically clapping for myself to believe in the Tinkerbell effect and to believe in the Fae just by discussing the stuff now. So I don't know. I guess I just always got to have the clergy with me. <laughs> what did we learn so far today? When in doubt, clergy it out, right? <laughs> okay, I'm going to leave this segment of the podcast here because I really believe that what Aaron and Sorica have to offer could probably be even more enriching than anything I just said now. And our whole conversations and the way that we talk about the language of nature and tapping into the magic of the forest is going to complement what we've discussed so far beautifully. 
All right, everyone. Here we have not one, but two sibling storytellers from Ireland, from Grand Ole Ireland. I don't know if I did a well enough uh, dialectal impression there, but um, they're coming on today to help me paint the picture of the intersections of ethnomycology and Celtic lore, Irish lore. Uh, so welcome the both of you. Um, I want to say the names correctly. Aaron and Sorcha. Is it Sorcha or Sorcha? Sorica. Sorica. See, sorry. <laughs> sorry, it's neither. <laughs> humbled. Hashtag humble. <laughs> Sorica. <laughs> like Erica, the Irish version of Erica. It is, um, it is, it is kind of like Erica. It, to, I mean, in fairness to you, it is not spelt anything like it is said, unless yeah. you speak Irish, in which case it is. <laughs> Fair enough. Which she almost certainly doesn't. <laughs> no. no. Uh, well, the both of you have your own podcast slash storytelling company called Candlelit Tales. And when I had found a friend online that recommended the both of you, Jerusha, uh, oh, and her name is her name. She's from the UK, so it can't be an Irish pronunciation, <laughs> but she's an artist who recommended the both of you that I reach out. So I was so excited when I like put my fishing rod, you know, in the waters, the Irish waters. And I, I went fishing for a lot of different people and you two came up. So I'm so, so grateful to have you here to honor the space today so welcome the both of you thanks so thank much you for very, having us very glad to be here awesome so can you both just introduce yourselves and your relationship to another siblings the role you guys play together your co-creation of your business and whatnot sure my name is aaron hegarty i suppose i uh, have a performance background and you know would have and still do honestly uh listen to circa read or tell stories uh, with a very childlike amazement and certainly grew up listening to her telling me stories to keep me quiet. Um, I suppose we kind of got together and built the, the kind of Candle Tales as a, as a company, performance-wise, first of all. And then we kind of, uh, it's been adapting and we've been kind of enjoying how many strands and strains we can pull out of mythology and how re rewarding working with mythology is. Like in, in this year, our eighth year, I think it is now, we're doing more workshops in schools. We're doing, you know, we're getting a few more uh, feasts and, and parties and, and celebrations for, for bigger companies to be able to like actually enjoy a proper celebration around kind of either Samhain or Imbolc or the Celtic festivals. We're also continuing to perform and, and doing a lot of, a lot of online stuff, which is was helped by the fact that we had to do online stuff with with lockdown. So kind of, I guess, you know, Sarah can tell you about the our origin story, uh, so to speak. Uh, but I certainly had an, an amazing uh, storyteller in, you know, in, in ahead of me, six years ahead of me, teaching me without really knowing she was teaching, th teaching through practice. And I think I, I took an awful lot from her as we took from our parents, our uncles, our family of, you know, we share memories with with our family members so beautifully with story and through story. And it's been always gorgeous to to really see the, the storytellers in the family. And I've only now, years looking back, really appreciated how good they were and are still mm -hmm. uh, as storytellers. Nothing to do with myths, but to grab attention, to change tone, to really make it real, to really make you feel you're in that space and those memories coming alive with the random name that you never heard, but it's the cousin down the road and Mary O'Shaughnessy and her two sons. Yeah, sure, they were, they one's in Dublin now and one's in Cork. But anyway, and like the little tangents that lead into the rest of the story that fulfill the whole kind of immersion of it. And, and I kind of just, I, I look at that in new lenses now that we've been telling these stories for so long. And and it's constantly 
a great source of entertainment and distraction. So uh, it's great to play with, I guess. <laughs> Wonderful. What about you, Sor- Sorica? Sorica? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm Sorica and I am Aaron's older sister. And uh, I am a storyteller. And I once thought of myself as a writer. And then I found out that actually there's something about writing things down in pages that deadens them in a way that I realized I didn't like. Only after uh, with Aaron, I started standing up and just letting them, you know, live in a room and fly around and come back. Well, we we started our storytellings together uh, back in 20, Jesus, 2015. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was 2015. Yeah, we started our storytelling. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. That's, that's going to sound like a beautiful frog croak. Um, <laughs> well, we started we started storytelling together. Uh, yeah, 2015, I think. And um, but we had both kind of I think the 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 genesis of Candle Tales was a lot earlier than that, because really it kind of started when we were both kids uh, and when our dad told us stories uh, a lot of our relatives are fantastic storytellers um, on my dad's side but also on my mom's side our grandfather was a like, told fantastic stories a lot of them about family and a lot of them about like things that had happened and the extraordinarily dramatic events of like you know life on a farm in Ireland in the kind of 60s and 70s um, and we grew up listening to people who are just naturally very good storytellers. And then in my teens, I got really, well, pre-teens and teens, I got really into mythology, like I think a lot of kids do. And then I I kind of started with Greek mythology and then went into Irish mythology. And it was, I preferred it. I found a lot more in it. I found a lot more interesting stuff in it. Uh, I found a lot more like, it was very exciting to me as a kid that, you know, in the Greek mythology, mostly women were pretty princesses. They were either pretty and helpless or they were powerful in fucking wagons uh, and just horrible, horrible people. You, you could be you could be nice or you could be strong. And then Irish mythology just didn't have that. It just had, you know, some of the women in Irish mythology are absolute wagons. Don't get me wrong, but some of them are powerful and kind and some of them are you know, soft and empathetic. And some of them are druids and craftswomen and satirists and also, you know, mothers and nurturers and also leaders and warriors. And so it just kind of was a much bigger range of things. And then I started telling the stories to Aaron. Um, I would read them and then I would tell them to him um, because he was hyperactive and he needed to be told things to, to get him to be quiet sometimes. And then that kind of, that was sort of there. And then, you know, fast forward um, a couple of decades, we'd both lived in different, you know, I think I'd I'd lived in a different country for a while. I'd come back again. Aaron had also traveled a good bit. And we like both ended up in Dublin at the same time. We're not actually from Dublin. We're from another part of Ireland, which is, you know, won't mean much to anybody outside of Ireland, but we're from Cork, which is important if you're from Ireland. And kind of came back together again in Dublin, uh, both working with Irish mythology. We ended up writing a play together that was based on Irish myth. 
Aaron was doing walking tours and telling stories. And I was uh, working with a group called Bard Mythologies and telling stories. And we both kind of kept sort of orbiting each other and mythology and stories and kind of coming into this idea of, well, what if we just what if we just told them? Because, you know, in Ireland, you get traditional music, you get trad sessions. Um where people will just kind of come in and, and start, you know, start playing. There'll be a trad night organized. And if you're a musician, you'll go along and you'll start playing. And it was kind of like, well, we still do that. So why don't we still do this? Like, what's the difference? Um, and as Aaron pointed out very immediately, because Aaron is a trained actor and also knows about, you know, a, a trained trained for both film and television and also uh, theater. He was like, well, you you actually need it. You need a door that closes because you need to be able to keep people's attention and you need to have a certain kind of hush in order to be able to to follow a narrative, which is not you don't need that for music. So we started doing it. We just started doing it for, I think, five weeks. We were going to do Telling the Tone for five weeks over winter uh, in the dark. And then people turned up and then more people turned up. <laughs> and it was it was a good like it was a good number of years after that that we started the podcast. Uh, we had been telling stories in Ireland, in Dublin and Wicklow and pubs and in venues and in gigs. And we'd kind of. We'd been doing that for, I guess, three or four years before we ever started podcasting. We'd been talking about it, but, um, you know, I often kind of think we we tend to do things a little bit backwards because I often see podcasts that, you know, they get they get a podcast following and then they do a live show. And I was like, oh, yeah, we just did. We did about 300 live shows and then we did a podcast. <laughs> so and then, of course, when lockdown happened and all of our shows got cancelled, um, we we did more. So we our, our our podcast has become a much bigger part of what we do over the last kind of two and a half years. Mm, that's what I was going to assume. I was kind of my next question is how did you adapt to storytelling on through this kind of medium instead? Because it does seem, at least from how you started, it seems like a very natural, even if it seems backwards, it's a natural progression to do the podcast later, given that storytelling is such a big thing. And it's a big part of your family and a big part of your like, you know, larger culture, but then the subculture, the microculture of your family. So to see it change over onto this platform, how has that been for you guys? It's been like it's been interesting because like there's some there's definitely were some times in particularly during the lockdown where I myself and Aaron talked about this, where we would kind of be working out a story because a lot of what we do is we're telling stories, but we're working from a, a broken tradition. So we're working from a, from a, a tradition that has a couple of very important ruptures. So the first is that the Celts didn't write anything down. Uh, so the arrival of. Christianity coincided with the arrival of a written language. And so the only written records we have are, are done by people from another religious background, which is, you know, a, a very open and very much debated uh, question among scholars as to how much was changed and how much was edited. And a lot was like left out and deliberately left out. Um, and then you're also working in a tradition where Ireland was colonized and the Irish language was outlawed and books in Irish were outlawed. So and then, you know, at the same time that the British crown was giving away ancient texts as royal gifts. So there are big holes in the already fragmented record that we do have. Uh, there are big there are big gaps. So there's a lot of missing parts. And so 
you know, for storytellers, that's a that's both a kind of a tragedy, but also a great opportunity because you end up putting things together and rearranging things. You have fragments and you are trying to like find the connective tissue between them and make it into a narrative that feels cohesive. So I think I didn't realize how much of that was an interaction with who I was speaking to. So there's there's something about we would work out, we'd always work out like, we know what happens next in the story. We know what the next thing that we have to say is. Like there's somebody and he starts and he has to go on a quest for a reason. And you, you've got your order of events. But in between that, we don't script it. We don't memorize it. We don't have it, you know, locked in very hard. So like if the audience is really enjoying this walk through the woods, we will stay walking through the woods for another while and describe it a bit more mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Or if there's a funny thing that you find along the way, you'll just you'll just keep pulling at that while it's still entertaining. Um, so there's a kind of a rhythm to it that is extremely interactive. And I found it uh, I found it quite jarring at times, especially when I was telling stories that I hadn't told to a live audience to have to sit down with just a microphone and figure it out because there was nothing to bounce it off. There was no sense of like, all right, I've talked about this long enough because I can feel the bit in the energy just before people start shuffling their feet. And now I need to move on to the next bit. There was nothing there to get. There was no feedback. So I found that quite weird. But then at the same time, it allowed us to, I think, get to a level of sort of refinement. Like, you know, you're recording yourself. You can say, ah, I kind of I, I messed that up and I, I stumbled over the words there. I'm just going to pause it and cut that out and say that line again, which, you know, is nice to be able to do as well. So you kind of get I, for me, it's it's been a question of like there there are some there are some trade offs. I do not want to only do podcasts. I really, really still value and I really missed having the interactive kind of element with an audience because I think there's a there's a kind of a co-creative thing that happens that's just ir- it kind of irreplaceable. And I mean, we, you know, we talk to ourselves, we talk to each other more and we kind of we often do talk out the stories anyway. But um, yeah, it was a mixed bag in that way. And I think the music as well was kind of similar. You know, the guys had more time to work on it and work it out and get it to a level of being polished. But then also there's something so lovely and spontaneous in kind of flying a little bit by the seat of your pants and just relying on your experience and the kind of cohesion of the group to just come together in those magic little moments that you'll never really, you'll never really be able to replicate the feeling of in a recording. Yeah, it's it's, it's it's its own kind of milieu. And maybe you're also tapping into something a bit more archaic because that's also how stories were told. It was the same thing, right? And you didn't have it. There was no option for a podcast. There was no option to go back and edit anything, right? You just had to you had to go through with it. And you know, something I thought about too is like I know Ireland's not the only the only culture to have been oral, right? Most of the world had oral storytelling traditions. And, you know, one of the reasons why with my, my podcast, I've infused so much mythos and storytelling into it is because that is one of the best ways that we actually like retain information and pass it down. And that's like how our brains, like our ancestors for a very long time, once, you know, the surface of the ape cognition got some language, you know, we're holding on to what we had and passing it down through word. And that was for a long, long time. So it's not surprising that 
And it's a very comfort, comforting thing. It's an easy to recall thing. And I think that when I started this podcast, I was like, you know, because I love mycology, it's like my hyperfixation, and I love everything that it represents. I also know that there's a side to it that's extremely overwhelming for people. It's the nomenclature, it's the taxonomy, it's all the names, and it just mean mushrooms are such an and fungi, fungi, fungi just in general are such an yeah. overflowing, um, just a, like a phenomenon, right, of an entire kingdom that has been kind of left out. Even in biology, for many of us, we had a short section on fungi, and that was it. And there's yeah. so many stories to be told across the world about it. And I find that I can teach people about some of the science, but I'll be like, oh, but see how this mirrors the, you know, the, our relative experience of time or this or whatever. And, um, or even weaving in my own anecdotal stories. It also helps me remember because Mm -hmm. I don't have a mycological background. I'm just trying to learn myself and I learn best through teaching others as well. So I think that's also been a couple of things. So you're really pulling at something important. And I think what a lot of podcasters are trying to do as well is like, even if there's a big time gap, how can we engage the audience? Maybe by reading reviews or um, asking them in an Instagram story and answering their questions or something later on. So that they'll for sure try to tune in and hear. So they do feel like they're a part of it, but yeah, you're definitely right. There's something I feel very nostalgic for. And I don't even know if I was, if I was around that many campfires telling stories as a kid, but I sure do feel like I was (laughs) because the nostalgia of wishing that you were there is so strong even now so yeah I think it's something that we can all kind of you can all imagine it you know the 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 firelight and the and the the single voice and everybody just kind of wrapped with attention because I think it's probably an experience that an awful lot of us share if not being told stories and at least being read stories as like a little kid like how many of us grew up with a parent or a guardian who who read to us and I think it's a lot of us. It's not all of us, but it's it's a huge number of people, you know, have had that experience as kids. And we definitely had it like we we had, a, you know, our parents read to us. I read to Aaron and our dad also t- just told us stories. He just made up stories, <laughs> didn't didn't tell us he was making them up, uh, but told us these extraordinary fables uh, that he was serialized every single night. New episode that, you know, again, was just something that that our parents did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now that you're thinking, you know, when you're jogging my memory a bit, the, my mom did a lot of reading for us and also encouraged us to read lots of fiction novels. And, you know, even if it wasn't based in fact that you could expand your vocabulary, you know, there was a way to transport yourself. And I think, I mean, as an adult, something I'm finding is that every adult has a different means of escape. And, um, I think when we're kids, we see these adults as these kind of immutable kind of boring figures and, oh, it's us having all the fun, but we're looking to recreate that for ourselves when we're older. And we have a lot more autonomy over that. So I can imagine, I mean, I'm not surprised that candlelit tales became such a, such a, such a popular thing. Cause it's so cozy. And maybe there's also like an element of, I don't know, maybe you can speak on this, but Irish pride, or just, you know, it's something very cozy, very quintessentially Irish for those, you know, fellow neighbors and things like that too, maybe. I think so. I think there's, there's kind of like, we have an interesting relationship with mythology in Ireland because it has, it has some baggage. It has some not great baggage and it has some kind of, there's been a lot of repackaging of Irish culture for sale. You know, there's been an awful lot of kind of, you know, you were talking about, you know, the shamrock beers and all that kind of stuff. There's, that is something that Irish people engage in because that is, you know, we we have a huge tourism industry that is driven by people wanting to come here. And part of that is like this idea of Irishness abroad and among an Irish diaspora that is something like 10 
times larger than the population of of the actual island, if not 100 times larger, I can never remember. Um, But like vastly huge um, and people who feel connected to Ireland and people who have ancestry from Ireland, that this is something that I think Irish people have a little bit of cynicism about a lot of the time. Because of course, because it's it's sort of you know we're we're commodifying our own culture and we're 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 selling it, but also there's a there's a kind of a one of the kind of areas of baggage around that is has to do with how mythology was used during the Gaelic revival and the Irish War of Independence, which was as a sort of a this idea of a romantic Ireland of this you know sort of wonderful Celtic twilight. like poetic imagination that never really existed and and is kind of almost a sanitization of what Ireland is (laughs) that again Irish people were doing in order to kind of bring about some sort of sense of sort of national identity and national pride and so it became I think for a lot of people it became kind of twee and it became kind of cringe and it became kind of like eh this is something that was was at one time used politically for an end and now we don't really want to get back into it so it's been it's been a little bit sticky for a lot of people and I've had some interesting conversations with people over the years about like yeah you know Irish mythology I don't know seems a bit seems a bit weird seems a bit you know those the people who used it in order to recruit people to fight for a war uh, for an ideological war you know those those are things that mythology is really good for as well you know like you like you're saying we are we are wired to understand and we are also wired to accept stories. Like that's the kind of the bit where it can get dangerous is that a good story is convincing and compelling. And so a good storyteller can be lying their ass off. But if it sounds good, you'll buy it. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a real like, the, you know, it's it, there's a, there's a power in storytelling. Um that doesn't mean that it's good or bad. It just means that it's powerful. And I think, if you know, as storytellers, we try to be sort of conscious about that power and conscious about how we're, you know, how we're using our words and how we're expressing things as well, because it can be, you know, a little bit, a little bit dangerous, a little bit potent, as anything with real depth, I think, is. It can be, it can be both good and it can be bad. And I think like anything, like anything very powerful, it's, it's, it's more a question of like handle with care and, you know, be aware of what we're putting out there and be aware of what we are uh, maybe becoming responsible for <laughs> because getting people in- interested in mythology. Yes, absolutely. But like one of the things that I'm always kind of pulling back on, especially when we talk about our stories is like, this is not the definitive version of the story. This is our version of this story that we came up with and invented and are now going to talk about how and why we did that. A lot of a lot of the time there's a desire to get locked into this is the real version. It's like there isn't there isn't really a real version of a lot of these things. I was listening to you, uh, although I was late, I was listening to the conversation and uh, I there's something about stories that, as Sorok is saying, you know, they're divisive and they can be used for very different means. But there's ways of reinterpreting them as well There's ways of reimagining them. And I think that's very important because especially now in the time of, you know, vast creation and need for people to be very creative and find answers and understand different ways of doing things and looking back and taking some good from the past without romanticizing it completely and understanding that some of these were written down with 
you know, a mind frame, a certain worldview. And there's a nugget in there and there, there might be something to take out, but there's definitely something to leave behind maybe. And oftentimes, even in Lady Gregory, who's an Elizabethan kind of uh, writer in, in the times of that, and she, she and Yeats did a huge revival of Irish mythology. And without a lot of her source material, I wouldn't have as complex uh, an idea at all for the stories we tell. And yet there's often a slant to leave out women from the stories to glorify the male, to, to glorify the uh, overcoming the, the monster, I suppose, with, through violent means and possibly glorification of war in doing so. And so you can look at those stories, take the narrative and remove possibly a, a deeper connotation and, you know, maybe add in a, a slightly revamped connotation that you wish to portray now in this more modern an age which i think because we're all storytellers and we're all very in tune with how to tell stories we can very quickly adapt and and see when something is changed and corrupted and see when something is changed and actually maybe uh, is more kind of bountiful and more fulfilling afterwards so yeah i think there's there's an intention behind the way that we're telling them and and you know we want to we want to we want to keep that and we want to be conscious of that yeah that's wonderful well and it's funny you bring this up because you know i think scripting or writing essays or putting things down it's very much a representation or a manifestation of the official self like this is something that's important and i very much have these different personas as well when i'm performing or and or just writing something to be that anchor woman if i have something to write you know tonight on tonight's news but then if i'm just going off the cuff i did long Form improv when I was in university as well, much different ball game and something that I, I knew I needed to do it. And uh, when I started getting into it, it was more kind of driven by ego. Oh, I want to be a performer. But I think more of it was, I need to understand the unofficial self, the, 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 the inner hidden wild hmm. self, that inner sort of flow that happens in everyday conversation, but to be able to perform it and, and, and to sort of draw out the authenticity is something that I knew I needed. Cause I took myself way too seriously when I was younger. Um, and we all, yeah, didn't we all, right? And so to kind of find my voice, I think is something that storytelling allows. And even when I started this podcast, the first couple episodes are very like scripted. I'm like, I have many things people need to know about mushrooms. You sure <laughs> and- do. You sure do. <laughs> Like in but, fairness, it was very well articulated and very well scientifically, but I can hear the difference between your most recent podcast and the first few. Absolutely. hundred you percent. Know? Yes. Yes. I, Cause I was like, well, I just need, yeah, I had my justifications, but it was like, you know, grease in the wheel. And then I figured, you know, I do get a lot, I, I get along just fine. Just letting the constant monologue flow. I think probably all three of us have a common thread and it's being able to speak uninterrupted for uh, indefinite periods of time yeah. until somebody kicks you. Yeah. Yes. And then you snap out of it and you're like, oh, sorry, it's been three Whoops. years. <laughs> well, there is a fine line. Of course, there's a fine line. And, and like as a performer and, and a, you know, I love a beautifully polished script or something beautiful to like have something so, you know, codified and thought through and really analyze. And when a good script is great and a, the writing's fantastic, it's an absolute joy to pull it apart as an actor. I just love it. It's, it's fantastic. But it, it's a different ball game for me to be an actor in a script is like to really immerse myself in, in the character and to fall in love with his movements and and everything about him and everything about the world around it and and then it becomes a lot less about the story and more about the actor within the story and so if you're giving the overarching concept or the overarching narrative i think 
you know, it is nice to tap into that flow state. And I think you really do that when you learn to let go of the expectation of perfection, which you do when you yeah. write something on the page. And like you say, if it's, if it is scientific, if it is kind of, you know, historic or you're trying to be really accurate, you're already stopping yourself a little bit and you're inhibiting the flow state. So obviously you need to prepare. You can't to, to, to lack, a uh, lack of preparation will, will lead you to not being able to to go into that either. But over-preparing uh, will stifle that creative impulse to be freed into the improvisation kind of world. And I think that's a really good example of kind of long-form improv drama. Because I often describe, you know, storytelling our nights as like, it's kind of like drama. It's kind of like a stand-up comedy. And it's kind of like improv. So you never know what yeah. you're going to get. <laughs> All the more reason to come to one of your live shows the next time I'm in uh, Dublin, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. So let, let's kick off this podcast and talk a little bit about St. Patrick's Day, a little bit about leprechauns and about them genuinely, because I could tell you what I think I know about them, but you might laugh at me. So why don't you tell me about St. Patrick and leprechaun? I don't even know if they're that intertwined, but they're definitely both side by side in the Walmart aisles in America. You know what I mean? So, so go ahead. <laughs> let it rip. Can well, we start with leprechauns? Sure. Yeah, good call. Because I need to tell people about leprechauns. People need to know a certain thing about leprechauns. Leprechauns in Ireland, not a thing. Almost entirely not a thing. Fair. Leprechauns in the New World, huge. And the reason why I, why I say they're not a thing in Ireland is, I mean, they are. Obviously, they came from Ireland. They have an, their etymology connects to one of the, the old gods of the Tuatadanan, Lu, who is in some stories said to have been crushed under the weight of the, the hill of Tara, uh, where he was buried and, and lit, physically shrunken into a little Lu, which is a leprechaun, which is a leprechaun. But in terms of volume of stories told about them, they don't really feature. They don't really rate. You could look at things like Puka. There's a million stories of the Puka. There's like a million stories about Banshees. There's a million stories about like all of these, all kinds of different creatures and, you know, little people. If a leprechaun ever shows up, it's probably a story that came back from somewhere else. But one of the things about leprechauns is that they're very approachable in a way that most of the Fae are not. So the, the real through line through all of the stories of the other world is that it is unpredictable and it is dangerous. And the creatures that inhabit it are amoral and often terrifying, often beautiful, but often terrifying. And they can really screw you up. Whereas leprechauns, the worst that you get from an encounter with a leprechaun is you don't get the pot of gold. So I think the role of the leprechaun was much more about making Irish people when they became an immigrant community palatable to the area they were entering because it was a very approachable kind of folktale and a very approachable kind of mascot to have because they're cute and they're funny and they're not threatening. And they're at the end of the rainbow and who and doesn't fall in love with the rainbow when they see a rainbow, right? Absolutely. So they're colorful, they're cute, they're non-threatening, they're never going to hurt you. And if you're really lucky and really clever, you'd even get money. You know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a folktale for integration, but yeah. it is not a folktale that Irish people tell to Irish people. 
I will I will say I'll just hop in a little bit and kind of um you know I, James Stevens writes a book called A Crock of Gold, which is a masterpiece. And he kind of, he was a great storyteller at the turn of century and he, he, he and 19th century that is, and he like wrote an awful lot of beautiful descriptive stories that kind of weren't necessarily re- retelling, but he wasn't recreating the wheel either. He he kind of embellished and, and moved things around. And so he used an awful lot of folk beliefs within the stories he was telling within the books they told. And that's kind of what I think Sarek is touching on is like the beliefs that were in Ireland that possibly went across uh, the Atlantic. They, they stayed in some form of consciousness and they came up in different ways then again, and then they kind of bounced back across and, you know, they came, came back with, Oh, so like the chloricon is definitely a creature that comes up as a a slightly helpful, not necessarily malevolent uh, spirit, kind of fey and the fey he's, he's the closest relative of the leprechaun and he's, he's a little bit leprechaun. he's a little bit darker he well, is a little darker and but you have all of these like this amazing tapestry of Irish mythology kind of the gods the old gods the two of the Dan and they were known as and they became the fey the fairies and kind of around the Christianization of the country you you have a strange thing that happened where all of the, those higher power godlike people became shrunken and literally in the language they became the we people the little people they went under hill and they went far far away because they weren't as good as the one big god and it was just a kind of separation between old beliefs and minimizing the and, and putting them kind of beneath the new one mm-hmm. and that's kind of you know the while, representation metaphor that kind of seems to work yeah and and i think while also allowing people to keep those beliefs yes because that's one of the other things is that like a lot of the places and this is an, another interesting connection between leprechauns and lou and saint patrick is that a lot of the a lot of the places that used to be associated with lou became associated with patrick so crow patrick which is a mountain in the west of ireland it uh, used to be apparently used to be a Lou mountain that used to be uh, associated with the sun god. And there is a very ancient pilgrimage that people do where they walk to the top of the mountain on bare feet, which, again, may be older, <laughs> maybe, maybe older. And then now there's a church on top. But there is a you know, I've I've always kind of said if I ever walk up the reek, I'm walking up but for Lou and not for St. Patrick, because for me, that's that's what I'd be connecting to. Um, yeah. so there's there's an interesting kind of it is an interesting dynamic because there was as Aaron says like this demotion of the old gods into a place of superstition but there was never a relinquishing they were never actually thrown out they were always kept they mm-hmm. just occupied a different position because they weren't you know the old gods were also not uh, not necessarily good not necessarily, not necessarily friendly bad. and not necessarily bad. And they occupied that weird kind of amoral um, space where you didn't know if you were going to get good or bad, if you were going to get like rewarded or punished, because I think a lot of the times paganism is, is, is kind of trying to explain the natural world and the natural world is often unfair and unjust and terribly unfair things happen to you. So it's easier to believe in like these capricious you know, malevolent gods than it is to to kind of go, well, there's probably a good deity up there. They're just not really paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of deities and St. Patrick, I suppose like, you know, 
the funniest thing about St. Patrick being the, the most famous Irishman that was, wasn't Irish at all. Again, another myth busted. He was Welsh. He was a, he was a slave who was captured and he was brought over to Ireland. And the story goes that he, you know, he had a dream and came back to Ireland and then spread the word of God after he escaped and came back. And and, and that's how uh, he spread the word of God. But the, the most kind of iconic symbol to do with St. Patrick is, is the, and it's not necessarily, he didn't actually, do it or anything but it's the um the celtic crosses and the celtic cross has a circle around the cross that's that's there and we've you know i was in a school recently and we were, t- we were talking about the celtic festivals and, and the celtic crosses and why it's a solar calendar it's a circle it's a year it's a wheel it represents the year and the season and sun turning and the the summer solstice the brightest day of the winter uh, solstice the uh, the shortest the two equinoxes and then in between each one of those points you have a celtic festival and so that's where spring comes in between winter and uh winter and, and spring you have imbal between spring and summer you've built in it between summer and uh autumn you've lunasa which is the irish for august and before between autumn and winter you have sowen and sowen is autumn or sorry sowen is uh the autumnal uh, feast for it's also the name for November and we, that's the one and it's the it's the name for for Halloween yeah. that is that is the again another thing that went away and came back stronger was I think the Halloween tradition because that was you know that was a, a big celebration in Ireland and, and I think has become bigger as a result of it mixing with other cultures and coming back again so it's really interesting what what things are sent out into the world what actually gets brought back and why Mm. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's kind of where, you know, leprechauns are interesting. Samhain is interesting. Patrick is interesting because these are all things that get sent out and, and sort of bounce back a little bit distorted and a little bit different and sometimes a little bit, um, strange, but yes, that's, uh, that's Patrick. And one of the stories actually that we like to tell every year on our podcast and we're, and we're, whoops, sorry, fiddling shouldn't hit metal things together when I'm fiddling. Um, one of the stories that we really like to to tell at this time of year around Patrick's Day is a very old story called Achalavna Signorica, which is the the conversation between the old men is what it's what it translates to. And it is the story of Patrick, the saint, in conversation with one of the great old heroes, a warrior poet named Oshin, who ends up uh, spending thousands of years in the other world and coming back and aging uh, overnight. And he and Patrick debate religion and philosophy. And uh, at the end of the story, apparently there were two versions for a very long time, but the, but the certainly the one that we've settled on at the end of the story, in some versions, Pat, it, Patrick manages to convert Oshin, but in a lot of the stories, he doesn't. <laughs> because Oshin is like, well, you're not going to let my hounds into heaven. So why would I want to go to heaven? <laughs> and, and what what kind of a host turns away some people and doesn't turn away other people? My father would never turn away some people just because he didn't think that they were good. He'd still bring them in, feed them, and give them a feast. And if they were acting the maggot, he'd probably talk to them. You know, this this it was just a whole different kind of idea of what being good was, and what being a god was, and what being a kind of a king was. Uh, mm. So it's a, it's a it's an interesting little clash of cultures. Uh, in an old story as well that you it like is to read too. it, and I I'm still fascinated by the fact that St Patrick's Day is one of the biggest days. You know, well certainly in America and and like even in Argentina, it's one of the biggest 
festivals. You know, there's a massive diaspora over Argentina across the world becomes extremely popular to celebrate Irishness. And it's kind of just, it's kind of almost an excuse. Like it's not it's not specifically anything really other than we need a damn day. And we're going to pick this one. And it's when he it's when St. Patrick lit the fire and essentially converted the kings to Christianity and the kings kind of, you know, had the uh, the authority over people to, to, to change religion and then gave them the allowance. And that's when the whole kind of country became uh, Catholic. But there was there's also a well, big shift. There was, well, sorry, it, sorry, you know. it wasn't Catholic back then. It was sorry, it was Bielton, yeah. wasn't it? It was the first of May because he lit yeah, the May yeah. fire before the high king, which is actually and, that's that's the story of when he really kind of solidified his power was that the first fire was meant to be lit by the High King of Ireland and Patrick lit his fire first and didn't get run out of town, uh, which I think was maybe just because he had no followers at that point. <laughs> but it's a, it's, a perfect, it's a perfect example of the changing of the guard. You know, yes. it's that like, it's the hierarchy that was in uh, the, the old laws of Ireland, the Brehan laws, the, the ways of, of governance changed as we moved into gradually between like not 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 exactly, the, but like yeah, so it was the, a changing the, of the ways. We're conflating so. a couple of things now because the Brehan laws didn't change. The Brehan laws stayed in, in place until the 16th century, which was a lot, lot which was a long time after Patrick. Long um, time after Patrick. That was they they I, were I, displaced they were displaced by the by the British common law, which is a different Different. Sure. I, I. I mean, I'm. I'm. I'm more coming. Kind of looking back at what it's kind of representative of now. I guess you know that the, sure. like there's there's a kind of a uh, as much as some people right now will also kind of romanticize the pagan and go back to all the wonderful pagan times. I think the the romanticizing of how we became Christian or, you know, Christianity spread through the country and how it was all lovely. And we got rid of the snakes and it was great after that, you know, <laughs> like that's kind of like, hang on, it was so well, it, dark I, chapters of history. I, actually think came after I mean, that. some incredibly dark chapters in our history, which is in part why I think people are turning away and maybe turning back to older stuff. But I think there's also, you know, there's a really interesting through line in all the mythical stories, you know, in the story of Oshin when he comes back, it's it's always remarked on by any of these heroes who've been away for a long time, how small and gray everyone looks mm. and how all of the heroism is gone. And all of the all of these like the people are somehow diminished by this new uh, system, this new order. So it's always kind of an interesting one because it's, it's almost like the storytellers have their own nostalgia for the paganism. Um, and the kind of their own their own idea about like well once upon a time we were heroes and and our heroes could defeat could defeat the king of the world on Ventry Beach mm. and so why is it that then that nowadays we're we're you know a colonized country that's occupied mm, what's going on here you know so there's the, I think there's always been that kind of a little bit of cultural tension because I think the Christianity in Ireland as well for a long time was cultural. Like it was a it was an identity thing because it differentiated us from, um, you know, it, it Catholic Irish Irishness was very linked with nationalism. And we talked a little bit about that um, before with the way that stories became part of the kind of nationalistic push during the War of Independence. Um, but it was also it was not about the faith. It was about the community that was fostered by the faith. And then when people found out what was being done by the faithful in our industrial schools and in our orphanages and in our laundries, like the horror uh, and shock at that, the level of abuse that was going on really um, created a huge 
uh, trauma, I think, in the culture mm. that we're st- we're only kind of, like we're still only beginning to unpack at this point. Yeah, certainly, this stuff is still coming out. Mm. Yeah. Well, I what I what I'd say to that is yes to that. Same thing too with um with I'm I'm planning on going to down the, the path of indigenous and first nation people stories with mushrooms and ethnomycology and similar mm. things happening, especially with Canada and the yeah. recovery of children and the schools there and things like that. So it definitely jogs my memory. So um what I would say as well, though, as somebody who comes from like, you know, I'm an American, but I moved back here to kind of find my roots. And I did a Swedish TV show, however many years ago about ancestry. And I felt a very big call to the Nordic, you know, geography. But what I saw is that it was also perpetuated by people who had that background, both in Minnesota, the Norwegians, and then up in the upper peninsula of Michigan, uh, Finlanders or the, the Finns. And it's a very interesting, um, I think everyone like there's there's a sort of this collective unconscious of people from these different cultures kind of wanting this quintessential experience to be forever. And the way that Finlanders in Northern Michigan talk about Finland is not what Finland looks like now, but that's what they want it to be. (laughs) And same thing with like, you know, St. Patrick's Day kind of is represented the same way in different places across the world. And it's celebrated year after year in very similar ways in America. And the Irish who live in America are so proud of it because they that, that's the best yeah. that's the best they get they don't actually get to be in the mil- milieu again I guess I use that word again of of the lived experience of being in Ireland or to, even for me to be in yeah. Norway my friend was just at Epcot in uh, Florida with all the different areas of the world she's like I'm in Norway I'm like Norway from the 1800s in like a king's house maybe that's not where I live now but um it's interesting I mean even through these stories now like when, when we're going to talk about the fae there's also a very quintessential way that I imagine them and sometimes there you know, the way we like to store and celebrate things or return to things is from a place of nostalgia because nostalgia is a powerful drug, you know, Mm. and I want, you know, everyone wants to feel that coziness and the comfort and the familiarity of something as well. I was listening to a Ted talk the other day that if you want to sell anything that's new, it also has to be familiar. So it's a, it's a very interesting dance of like, and reflection of the culture, what people are comfortable with and what people are familiar with. And, um, I think that plays into the stories and then capitalism is like, ah, yes, people like this. This is familiar. Let them have the shamrock shakes from, you know, McFlurry's every year. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's, you know, um, no, sorry. I had a thought there and that went away again. It drops off the cliff. Happens to yep. me all the time. Sorry, Karen. <laughs> Well, I mean, let's just jump into the Fae then. Let's talk a little bit about that. So a couple of my thoughts beforehand. Um, I went into this, uh, just like everything else, incredibly naive. I was like, yeah, you know, fairies going to be, I can learn about them in a day, you know? (laughs) And then little do I find that there's a whole LGBTQIA plus community of people who identify as Fae. It's a whole culture. And I was like, well, I don't want to exotify that. And then also learning that beyond just like what we see with like Tinkerbell or all these cute little quintessential fairies, there's lots of sort of scary stories being told about the fae and the the evil fairies and all the things you should do and should not do with gift giving and gift receiving and then the fairy circles that are made of all different kinds of mushrooms and I think that there's probably you guys seem on the edge of your seats to jump in and tell me a little bit about the fae <laughs> and I guess before you do that can you just tell me the difference between fae fairy the word fairy I know sometimes people are offended by the word fairy and the spelling go ahead well okay so there you know the first thing to just rewind a little bit in terms of Irish mythology is the oldest book was the Lower Gawala, or the, the one that we found anyway. Um, and that's the 12th century. 
and that tells the story of all of the peoples coming to Ireland. And essentially, Ireland doesn't have a creation story, therefore. Now, some people have kind of amalgamated and recreated it and found ways yeah. of, of doing a creation story. But essentially, uh, the way we have talked about it and, and like to think about it is like, Ireland was empty and then lots of people came here. And that's why it's so welcoming and it should be so welcoming. And people, we're all a mix. We're all from afar. We're all mixing in together and figuring out how to survive here. And when people landed, three lakes, you know, burst open and the land itself welcomed people here. And then after, you know, the first series, the first plague and then the second death and wars and, you know, a series were, of things. There happened. were various wipeouts in these invasions. So sometimes people refer to, you know, we were talking a little bit about the the old gods and how they were diminished into fae and fairy. Um, they were the fourth or fifth group of people to land in Ireland, depending on how you count it. So some people think of them as like the original inhabitants, but they weren't the original inhabitants. Like I said, there were four or five on that on the on the list of invasions. Or six, if you count the or six. Mornings. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you depending on how you slice it, they're actually quite low down uh, or they're quite recent in their arrival to the land, but they are older and they are displaced by the Celts who were the kind of, you know, Iron Age culture. And or the Sons of Mill, to be specific for anyone who's going to... Absolutely, absolutely, yes. By all means, let's let's get really specific in our terminology on the psychology yeah, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Just be super pedantic, Aaron. <laughs> Not now, what you yet. need to know about the Can sons of Mill, you don't need to know about the sons of Mill. You don't need to know. But I think in terms of fairy, fae, uh, little people, the thing to keep in mind, I think, from, from our perspective, uh, you know, fairy can, it can be used as a, as a pejorative. You know, you're, some people have claimed fae as an identity. Uh, there is a lot of, there are a lot of different versions of fairies and elves in popular culture i think you kind of have a spectrum from tinkerbell to like elrond um and irish irish mythology fairies are not either of those but they have some relationship to both of them because they are powerful and they are inhabitants of the other world because what happened when the the sons of mill the celts encountered the two of the danon the magic people was that the two of the danon divided the land with them and went underneath the hills. And then subsequently, when we had the, the Christianization of Ireland, those people under hill went from being gods to being euphemistically referred to as little people or good people. They were often called the good people. And that was not because people thought they were good. That was because people didn't want to get on the wrong side of them because they were, they were well known <laughs> to be extremely easy to offend. And vindictive, if you did offend them. Yeah, and 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 that supernatural power was always kind of associated with them. I mean, the, there's beautiful kind of descriptions of the the Tua de Danan. Is that's the the people of the goddess Danu to give them the full title, and Danu the Danube. There's theories of where that goddess was and where that tribe came from, and you know why that got vanished and 
possibly patriarchy had a, a hand in it, but whatever. The the the, the two of the Danum went off to the Gorius, Morius, Fandius, and Phileus, the magical islands in the north, and they came back with magic. So the inference there is there was some degree of magic beforehand, but these beings came back with fully fledged, uh, uh, you know, transformative powers. They yeah, they went. They went to magic schools and they got magic items and they came back more magic because there's a real kind of slipperiness about who gets to do magic and Irish myth as well because you know almost everybody seems to be able to do it or else you know they, they all seem to have some kind of access to it but then the two of it done in like breathe it you know they they hit each other with hazel rods and turn into different things um and so f- like fast forward then a few hundred years of subversion of those stories of the kind of uh, the Catholic influence, the the superstitions, the beliefs of and, and the unknowing of of mental health, of illnesses, of of the the bleeding of old stories, beliefs into explanations of Down syndrome or uh, autism, and you have which the amazing- is. You know, which is an awful lot of ways. At times, you get like the changeling story is incredibly powerful. It's still, you know, Bridget Cleary was the last witch or woman burned. She was claimed to be a witch, but she was. The story goes that she was the last changeling, and yeah, her husband which, accused her of being a just fairy. To, to give some context about what a changeling is, the idea of a changeling, I think, gives a really good idea for what Irish people thought of the good people, uh, because a changeling was a stolen child. So the the superstition, the belief was that if you did not adequately protect your baby, uh, particularly a baby, but but also older children as well, uh, particularly if they were especially beautiful or, you know, especially promising or especially praised. You were not mm-hmm. supposed to praise people's babies in Ireland. That was a very strong superstition. The fairies would come and would take them and would leave behind one of their own. And that child would be off. There would be something wrong with that child. And if you were. Uh, if you were in tune enough, you would be able to tell. And if you were able to tell, you would be able to get rid of the changeling and get your own child back. And usually the ways to get rid of your changeling were extremely brutal. Um, And there are, you know, there are like legal cases from the 1800s and the 1700s of, of people, you know, dismembering, burning, killing members of their families who were believed absolutely to be changelings. Um, because as Aaron said, they, they, they did not have an understanding of, of, you know, mental health issues. They did not have an understanding of neurodivergencies. They did not have an understanding of physical disabilities. So it's a lot of it is like extremely dark. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's a really popular thing to come back to. Again, like when we say fairies and fae, the, the Darby O'Gill is definitely the Disney version of yeah. you know, the little people. And actually, I meant to say Walt Disney was the first person who actually illustrated the leprechaun. And so he, you know, that's where that came, that image came from. It wasn't actually us. Um, so, you know, again, it was just between bouncing back and forward. But the, uh, the, the, the idea of the, the Fae being kind of untrusted or something, you know, you leave a, a kind of a, a token out for, or you you walk around the fairy forest, you don't go through it, you don't, yeah. you don't knock it down, you make like and farmers you, have you leave gifts. To be avoided. Sorry. You appease, you leave gifts, you, you leave uh, a dish of cream, you leave um, things to appease and, and, and sort of um, soothe them so that they don't target you. 
And yeah. it's very true, like what Aaron was saying, you don't, fairy circles, there are also a number of standing stones in Ireland, like a lot of old circles of standing stones that you will find and dolmens that are sort of left over from older cultures uh, that the Celts didn't understand. And we, we don't, uh, I, I don't even still understand how re- they put them up there. None of us, nobody does. They are, they are, they are Giant traces rocks. of an older culture. Huge giant rocks and and also the, the hills like one of the things one of the things about the the ferries going under hill comes from the the mounds like Newgrange and Noth and and La Crue, where there are mounds that there are hills that are too that are too regular. They're they're man-made hills. And they look weird. If you see them in the landscape, they look like that's that's too like perfect to be a natural shape. And of course, they're not a natural shape. They were built by a previous culture, but the Celts interpreted them as being the houses and the halls of the fairies, of the little people. Uh, and they were grand feasting halls for tiny people. So they're, they're like, they are dangerous. They are to be appeased. They are to be talked around and they are to be, uh, you know, aware of. Especially um, at certain times of the year, because yeah. especially at May Day in Samhain, there's this whole idea, actually, I think we should probably <laughs> let you, let you talk, say something and bring this back to um, I, mycology. I, I but uh, I, I, yeah, I have yeah. another thought. We, we, we also need to talk about the other world, but, you know. I feel like we've talked an awful lot. Well, yeah. I just want to finish that and just say there's actually an amazing um, movie out at the moment called You Are Not My Mother. And it's cut by uh, a girl I know, Katie Dolan. She's a fantastic director, but it's in cinemas now in Ireland. So if you want to check that out, that's kind of a reimagining of this changing story. And it will give you a bit of context if you're interested in finding a slightly um, tense horror movie based on Irish mythology. It's all <laughs> modern and very cool. So just bit of a shout out there. Well, I love that you took the conversation in this direction because upon all of my research and what was brought up to my attention as something important to include in this podcast was um, the representation of Faye and maybe like a reclamation, even just like kind of globally with neurodivergent people and or queer people, you know, using queer as like a catch-all term for the entire umbrella. Um, And I think there's a reason for that. Well, for one, these stories, I think it's important for us to be aware of them. I find the changeling story very powerful as a, as a neurodivergent person, my like extremely neurodivergent. Hello. I have a hyperfixation podcast on mycology. Like people don't do that, you know? Um, And when I learned about the changeling that really hit because I spent my whole life feeling very much like um, fish out of water, like constantly masking. I think that's also why you like to perform it. You're so good at performing because you have to, in order to kind of maintain some stasis, even though inside your mind's just like a swirling world of something else. And I think with the Fae as well, that's an extension of neurodivergency. Something I've been questioning lately as well is like, we're questioning identities, like gender identities, sexual identities, Mm -hmm. but like what about just how you experience your own mind? It feels kind of like the next step because I think there's a lot of, and I mean, it's such such a subjective murky thing, but queer people like to talk about that. Neurodivergent people, I mean, I could talk for hours about like the experience of the mind away from the zeitgeist and the mainstream ways we are taught, you know, the outer official self. And so coming back to these stories of the Fae for me, even if I don't have a Celtic background, I mean, I'm out in the Norwegian forest all day. There's magic out there. You know what I mean? There's probably Nordic fairies. I have yet to to learn about them. Um, And this, this idea, 
that, that we are to be apprehensive around that energy is the same way that people will be apprehensive around my energy sometimes, or yes. somebody who is just clearly on the spectrum. You know, we don't yeah. know how to treat them. We treat them poorly. Sometimes they act out when they don't feel safe. You know, when we don't understand them, they're, they're othered. And then sometimes they're something we like with the witch trials and things like that. Anything that's super other and super hard to understand feels dangerous because it's not familiar. It's not known, but doesn't mean it's dangerous. Sometimes we're just out here being cute, talking about mushrooms, talking about fairies and like <laughs> experiencing our minds perhaps in a vastly different way than other people. But then what does this conversation also open up for people who are like allistics, right? Like people who seem to fit into the status quo. Like, what does it even mean? Like you have such a crazy, like our minds are so crazy in and of themselves. It's just some people are more like programmed and bold to talk about that. <laughs> I don't know. I've always wanted to experience other people's minds yeah. just to see, because isn't that crazy? Like, is anyone else even actually real? Like, am I just my own person and everyone else is an object? Like, so we're kind of branching into philosophy. So I kind of see the Fae as yeah. well as something with that. Um, so I guess you guys can just jump back in. It was a really enriching point. Well, I just, I just think like that's the the whole idea of people kind of, you know, as you say, queer people love to talk about identity. And and a lot of the time straight people kind of don't because they're like, why are you talking about that? It's just obvious. Stop putting people in boxes. And it's like, but, you know, they because they they, they have been existing in a culture that they they have been unconsciously constructing their identities out of cultural material without realizing it because the world has never forced them to question it. So when you then kind of move into saying, well, what is, what, what are people like, what are people pulling from in the culture to create an identity that means Faye? What does Faye mean to those, mean to those people? And probably a lot of different things to a lot of different people, even within that community. So I think it's really interesting to kind of like, you know, obviously I can't speak to this from, from personal experience as to, as to, uh, you know, and is, as in, I'm not somebody who has that identity, but I think it is really interesting how people will construct their identities. And I think it is equally fascinating how people construct identities like male and female, because that is also something that we pull from a culture without often realizing that that's what we're doing. Because, you know, our culture reaffirms those identities daily and kind of mm -hmm. says, yes, you are correct. This, this is right, carry on. Or, you know, we often, I think everybody has had that experience I say a lot of people have had that experience of like, well, if man is this and I am this and these things are not quite meeting, am I man right? Am I doing it properly? Am I am I performing masculinity or femininity in the way that is expected of me? And am I going to get punched if I do it wrong? Mm. You know, these these are kinds of like questions that I think we maybe don't realize how much a lot of us grapple with. Like some of us realize we grapple with these things. Some of us, I think, grapple with these things without realizing that it's, that it's a, it's a grappling. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah. <laughs> well, something with my podcast as well that I've uncovered, you know, as well is like what even defines an organism when like the forest yeah. is so interlinked. And then on top of that, like, what is the experience that an organism that is non-human having? And why do we feel compelled to put our programming on them and to anthropomorphize them when maybe they're having a vastly different lived experience, you know? And I have met a couple of people who identify as Fae, who have some Celtic and or Irish background. And their language and how they sort of show up in the world is very mythological and very, um, they seem very much, they almost speak it like they're in a dream. It almost feels like they're part of a fantasy that they're pulling into mm. the real world, which is very interesting and super and like people like you might even have a hard time, like grasping the thought of somebody just like moving through the world that way. Um, but they're very much here feeling like their messages to help people create their own unique relationship to the land that they live on in their own backyard. Um, as that being part of like a collective thing that should be done in order to sort of save ourselves <laughs> because there's sort of a, yeah. go ahead, Aaron, it looks like you want to jump in. Go ahead. 
Massively, I think that's so important. I think like, you know, wh- whether you're looking back at these stories as for entertainment or cultural curiosity or some form of, of recognition of, of, of other, which is, 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 you know, what we're kind of talking about now is like, how do you, how do you explain other when you only have your own experience to go by and how do you explain the the scariness that you can see in the world and, and the uncertainty that can be you meet you can meet face to face out there and you know we we've gotten so used to you know doing our grocery shopping you now online doing driving cars never actually touching the ground never actually getting our toes in the earth we've gotten so far away from nature that our nurturing is coming from screens electricity and you know so that there's a massive disconnect from where our even our food comes from and you know it's it's amazing to go back and even just spend 20 minutes walking around tree trees in a forest even in your own garden mm-hmm. or in like there's a beautiful fairy forest very close to me here that is such a beautiful walk it's half an hour away and you go there and it's just a ring and it's old and you can sense the oldness and it's been left there because the farmer didn't want to mess with it for whatever <laughs> reason it's but it's just kept yep. the oldness and it's kept the fact that thousands of people have walked around it you know hundreds of thousands possibly we don't know and the trees there aren't as old as the rocks that are there and when they were exactly put i don't know myself but it's just you know they might have been made for housing cattle or animals or you know they might have been a shelter for a a tribe they might have been a fairy ring they might have been for the fae they might have been living underneath the hill we don't know but there's definitely a sense of magic there i think what you mentioned earlier is you go out walking in norway i go walking in ireland you can see the magic if you're open to it you can absolutely experience the veil that you can you know the the magmel which is the light shining on the ocean and that line and that passage that brings you to the other world it's right there you can walk along if you want and you can just see <laughs> that that gateway into the other world like it's just there and you can be absolutely mesmerized in that moment or you can choose to put on sunglasses and pick up your phone and whatever you know so like that's there's a disconnect and there's a choice always and there's a choice to yeah. believe in the magic and to immerse yourself in in the natural aspect and I think that feeds you more in a in a connective kind of maybe mycelial level than, <laughs> it, than just getting the entertainment from uh, whatever stories on TV and an entertaining way. Just yeah. tapping back into something that is kind of slightly more organic and slightly more in nature. And I don't quite understand what it is in our consciousness that needs it. And But there's definitely a, a chemical like balancing that happens when you walk around trees it's that's that's yeah. definitely true it's like a sense of mm, and maybe it's another one of those archaic things i mean how many thousands of years were our ancestors they were they were they were always connected it was just there was no other choice <laughs> for yeah. one thing and this idea of like mythologizing the nature and having all these stories are wonderful beautiful and i mean i'm, I'm a witness to everything people the fact that people believe in it and like will, like are superstitious i think that's awesome i would never negate somebody's thought but i think if you're someone who grapples with the idea of identifying as a fae or like the thought of what that might be for somebody or even believing in magic or you know i think there's a lot of ways to deconstruct our ideas of magic because also within mm. religion mag- magic is something that's seen as prohibited and things like that. Um, but I mean, just even getting down to what's even happening in the forest, the fact that our planet that is increasingly, you know, sick is still feeding all of us. And we're still having joyful experiences on this planet, despite all these really 
horrible things we're doing to the planet, the planet is still giving and providing everything to us. And I think that's also that, that, that feeds the disconnect, but it also gives us an opportunity to say, like, look at how magical the world is that it is this mighty, or even that, you know, take it a step further, your creator creators are allowing the sustenance or thinking, and my partner once said, you know, think about a whale, a blue whale whose heart is the size of a Corolla has to eat enough krill to sustain itself. Like you go try to feed that whale for a day. You couldn't, but yeah. you know, your divine could, you know? Um, and I think that there's so much magic in just, in, in just that alone. But if you let your mind crack open a little wider, you can see synesthet- synesthetically that there is a lot more going on there, but you do have to, you have to work for it. You know, you don't just get to go out there and be like, all right, show me. No, you better go <laughs> learn. You know, that's why I'm telling, talking people about mushrooms. I'm like, this is these, you eat these, don't eat these. This is what you have to look for, for this. You know, there's no rushing, but nature doesn't rush and nature gets everything done. And I think that's also part of the disconnect is we have a expectation of how much time it will take to feel connected to it. Or we have, I mean, just expectations of an outcome when going into nature or having a psilocybin trip, for example, throw the expectations out the window, just go and yeah. be a witness, go experience the mystery yourself, because we are enigmatic in and of ourselves just existing as in these skin sacks for 80 years. Like, why do we, what are we even doing here? It's not normal. Like that is a miracle. I think that's magical too. You know, no matter how pedagogical you want to be or how conservative you want to be in your thoughts around that, that's definitely. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I also think it's, it's always really interesting when you're like, you know, some people don't believe in magic and religions prohibit magic. And it's like, well, if, if, if it doesn't fucking exist, why, why do you need to prohibit it? It's not real. Why do you need to forbid it? (laughs) If it's not scary, why are you saying don't do it? (laughs) That's the paradox, isn't it? There's a a weird little there's a weird little uh, confession there of of belief in it, isn't there? Um, But let's I actually wanted to talk about the other world. Yeah, do it. Bring it in. Bring it in. Bringing in the other world and bringing in the the sight of the other world, because, you know, we were talking about fairy rings because there's there's different kinds of fairy rings in Ireland. You get the fairy rings that are stone. And you get the old monuments that have been there for thousands of years and we don't know who built them and we don't know why. And there's lots of theories and there's lots of them in the landscape. And there's an awful lot of people who will not touch them because they are sacred in a way that kind of transcends religion. They are sacred to the fae and to the fairies and they do they do not get touched. And I think it's I think there's some similar stuff in, in Norway. As, as far as I know, they have they have some respect for, for fairies there. There's also like hawthorn trees. There's also mushroom circles. There are a lot of entrances to the other world because this this idea in Irish mythology is that there is another world and it is right next to this one. It is sort of interweaved with this one, but it is also invisible. And there are some like there are, there are fairy tales about people going to the other world and uh, tasting the food of the other world or putting some ointment into their eye and then being able to still see the other world when they come back. Um, so there's all these things as well about how to see the other world and how to access the other world, which is really interesting in terms of, you know, mushrooms and cyclobin and, and like the cultural practices of taking that and of using that and of working with that as kind of, you know, medicine and magic. Um but I just wanted to kind of bring in that idea as you were talking about synesthesia and as you were talking about like, you know, putting yourself into nature or seeking out those kinds of experiences, because obviously in folklore, the main message is don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think there's something inherently conservative about folklore, because most of the stories that we, we, we finish up telling are don't, 
walk under ladders because somebody will drop something on you. It's Mm -hmm. don't go out at night after dark. It's don't, you know, don't cross that path. Don't make that bargain with the devil at the crossroads because it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. But I think that that also maybe shows you that there is a, a, there is perhaps another culture that is like, okay, now that you know not to do that, there's maybe a way of doing it safely. <laughs> if you have some people who know how to do it and can guide you. And I know that there are kind of, you know, there are, there are old traditions in Ireland that, that people have preserved that are quite closed, that are like, you know, there is a way of initiating into these things um, that you've got to follow. <laughs> yeah. So there's interesting stuff there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, I, I love that you brought that up. I learned about that I, when I listened to a book um, and it'll be my recommendations or, or when I put my sources at the end of this, I will bring it up. But I did listen to a very long book about um, the Fae. And it, what brought me in was that there was a foreword written by Terrence McKenna who I think does an excellent job of um, eloquently um, drawing down the absurd and drawing um, allegories and uh, real life. uh, His rhetoric around talking about the absurdities of DMT and things like that are actually really easy, at least for me to understand. And he spoke about uh, the Irish myth and the Fae as an ecology of souls. That's one threshold over, because this is quote unquote, one threshold over that can be endogenously accessed, you know, given certain different things, you know, like, you, you know, DMT is a pretty fast way to get there for some um but maybe there are other ways as well as as are said in the in the folklore um but i really do find that that it's an interesting thing about the inner magic and this idea that you know our body synthesizes uh tryptamine that can bring us to that place and it's believed that we release that when we are went through birth through death when we're dreaming maybe when we're in you know holotrophic breathing altered states that can give us that inner sight um but it's definitely a muscle it's definitely work and it's definitely a profound and sacred thing and if you're meant to do that, I think you really have to take the steps to get there or else something reckless can happen. You can have bad experiences. And I think whatever energy you're carrying within yourself and an attitude you're carrying within yourself goes, will be, can be reflected in like an actual psilocybin trip or, you know, anything, or even just like sober, you know, awakenings of the self can be very profound and scary. And I think that's also Mm -hmm. something I was talking with a friend about the other day is that this idea of this, of of the way we've packaged capital, capitalistically packaged spirituality is that like the highest realm is the sublime om namaste place. When really what you hear from people's trips is that it is far crazier. It's like, there's like the, the, the archetypes of the circus and sure the fae for example, you can maybe put those things together. I'm rambling a little bit here. Um, but it's, I, I think that there is a more profound in a, a, a sort of a large ecology um, in that world that is not just, you know, lo-fi music and hanging out, uh, you know, in, um, by the palm trees and feeling chill and Zen. It, I think there's a lot more going on there. <laughs> well, I, I, I always, whenever I, uh, like, you know, I think when you start talking about mushrooms, everyone starts talking about magic mushrooms, but there's so many beneficial ones to even just begin to see if you can even just take some artist conch or reishi as tea and see if the, does it help your concentration and does it have an effect on you? Can you begin to like small doses to, to just help your concentration if that's something that you struggle with or your energy if that's something you struggle with because you know the, the medicine is out there it's definitely not you know the way we modern medicine is is orchestrated now it, it falls into you know being profit based as well which is always dangerous and i guess going back to trying to try and tap into something that is 
otherworldly or connecting to another world aspect or connecting to these stories that talk about the other world I, I every single time i look at people or the the inscriptions on tombs the 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 swirls and the spirals and the triskels inside newgrange or the old rocks and the monuments those beautiful pieces of art i'm not saying they were like they were all taking mushrooms i'm not saying that but sometimes i'm like they must be not taking mushrooms um, <laughs> i mean when you're on mushrooms they were definitely taking mushrooms because you see the same swirls in your own eyes so like there's definitely a moment where you're like no they absolutely for sure were. and liberty and camps like, grow I, everywhere i can't definitively say that you that's know, true but also like, come on but also, <laughs> liberty caps grow all over the place. In Ireland, yeah. they're just all over the place. Mm-hmm. And it's really easy to pick them up. It's really easy to infuse them. But, like, there's a few fields around around us that just grow ridiculously abundantly. And they're, they're just, it's just, like, magic. And you, like, even if you take, like, what we you take one to be able to see all of them, then you can go, oh, there they are. Um, and, like, as you're kind of picking, because then, but, like, that that seems to me to be, again, like, you're going back to, like, the kind of neurological basis of where, you know, when did we get that extra bump in our psyche or, or our ability to to communicate to an extra degree, that little boink, that, you know, it was something that we took in our environment that helped us. And in terms of going back and like, if that happened at some stage and, you know, after a couple of hundred years, they were still looking back at the things that the people, their ancestors did that was good, you know, as we're toing and froing and each generation, each, you know, hundred years, each thousand years, we're making terrible mistakes. But we're also kind of progressing a little forward. We're looking back at, you know, some form of lesson to, to bring on. And as we can continue to look back at what might've gone on in, in the circles and in the, in the sacrificial, sacrificial areas or the, the places that were, you know, artistic, and how beautifully described as burial mounds and and artistically fantastically decorated you're thinking okay there's something here that is has been trying to be there's some message here that it might have might have been tried to pass on and it's it's that aspect of like you know there there whether it's patterns or swirls you close your eyes if you're deep meditation you can fall into it if you're looking at waves crashing on the water if you're looking at shells on the beach you'll see them all over the place suddenly if you open your eyes to the swirl and the cyclical nature nature of the world you'll see it if you stare at the moon too long you'll see it if you stare at the sun for three seconds you know you, you see it in the world in nature and and a little bit maybe of of the magic mushroom might help you get there to you know to, to recognize it maybe maybe you don't need to i've met plenty of people who are completely off in their own world and as we were talking about earlier just they might be one of the they might be just Either touch, maybe just a little bit fey. A little bit fey. And <laughs> you know, I mean, and that's, yeah, I've definitely met people who are a little bit fey. Even if they yeah. that's not what how they described themselves. I think I I, you know, you were as you were describing them, I was like, Yeah, I I think I know people I've, like that. <laughs> we've met them, we know them. Yeah, yeah. Definitely Slightly know people. Like that. Look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a certain there's a certain vibe smile. where you're like, Yeah, yeah. I mean, in Ireland we do we actually literally call we will say someone is away with the fairies. And sometimes it means somebody's a little bit zoned out and daydreaming, but also some people are just always a little bit away with the fairies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't blame them. Great... I don't blame them. It's a scary world I mean, out there. Portals to the other world. 
Um, they it, they used it. to be dangerous, but how how safe is this world these days? That that would be such a bad thing, you know. Honestly, um, the, my, the last episode we talked about lichen, and uh, I think we touched on the idea of the portal. We talked about caves a lot, um, and where the coastline also being the sort of the thinning of the veil between worlds, and that there mm-hmm. are many ways to sort of thin that veil. And I think a lot of it's done by the sort of superimposition where the duality kind of cl- collapses, the duality, the binaries that we're experiencing in this world start to collapse or fizzle out. And it's easy to find in mycology. It's easy to find. Yeah. I, I go searching all sorts of places for them that kind of keep a healthy distance sometimes. I'm like, oh, that was not interesting. Um, so could we talk a little bit, uh, anything that you guys want to say about fairy circles or maybe, I don't know, mushroom fairy circles. Like I was reading up on the different kinds of mushrooms that grow fairy circles. I know about the science, like the, the, the book definition of what happens with the mycelium spreading and how the fairy circle mushrooms get bigger every year. Um, do you guys have any anything to add to that? I mean, I don't know the science of it, um, but I, I know that like the meaning of it in our landscape is you don't step into it because that is similar to the, sto- the stone circles. It's either a portal or it's sacred ground. And I have heard truly wild stories from people who have stepped into fairy rings. And I don't mean happened to my cousin, happened to a friend of a friend, happened to my uncle back when he was a kid. I mean, people who told me things that have happened to them where they've stepped into fairy rings and then there were thorns in their beds and then their car broke down and then they had this like series of misfortunes. And then their grandmother said, did you go in the fairy ring? You need to go back and apologize to the fairies. And then they went back and they said, I'm sorry, fairies. And then all the bad luck stopped. So like, and I, and I, like not, not, this is not a singular story. This is, this is a story that I have heard from, from different people at different times. So I think like, and also have seen in folklore, like there is this, just this huge idea of like, you don't mess with it because as we mentioned, the fairies are easy to offend and, and will come back at you if you are disrespectful to them. Now, I think there are also stories of people being invited into the other world. There are also stories of invitations. There are also stories of people going there um, safely and coming back safely and coming back better. And a lot of the time that has to do with actually creativity uh, or being a little bit different. You know, there's there's a story of... Um, there's a great story about a little hunchback who, who joins in a fairy song and has his, his hump removed from his back and is straightened up by the fairies. And another uh, person with a, with a hunchback is like, that's a great idea. I'm going to do it too. And he barges in and interrupts the fairy song and they put the first guy's hump onto his hump <laughs> and make it worse. And often it is a musician that is invited in under the fairy hill to play for the queen of the banshees or to play for the puka and, you know, comes back with like, a catalogue of fairy music in his head and becomes the greatest musician in, in the country. So a lot of the time, those, you know, safe crossings, I think, are accompanied with a certain degree of, you know, artistic creativity or there's some kind of contribution there's some kind of an exchange happening. There's some kind of a like approaching with respect and giving something as well as just kind of just turn. But if you turn up and just expect gimme, mm. you get yeah. very short shrift. And if you turn up with disrespect, you get seriously knocked back. And that's kind of talking about that like expectancy or that looking for an outcome. If you're taking any form of hallucinogenic or, or even if you're 
you know you're you want to have a good time and you're looking for an end result you're end gaming and, and you're not actually staying very present i think that kind of ties in with that because there, there's something about uh the i guess the, the landscape being you know left alone because there's a certain uh, acknowledgement and a certain kind of respect for the for these rings and these these forts and these old places and even a lot of the the towers the the tall towers that, were, that are Christian the base of them could have been a lot lot older and there's there's a lot of uh, research gone recently found that, to say that actually some of the tall towers that we just drive past in the motorways could have been much much older and linked mm-hmm. uh, you know with satellite photos the positioning of them is amazing and they're li- lining up between Newgrange and Stonehenge with lines up down to Egypt. And you're like, oh, hang, on, hang on, what the fuck is going <laughs> I saw on? A video, I saw a video about that right, yesterday. Right I saw, it's yeah, funny, right. you know, I saw an exact video explaining exactly what you're telling me yesterday. And I don't yeah. know, so I, I know exactly what you're talking about. So all, all, the only reason I, may, I bring it up is not, not to kind of go down the like, whoa, these ancestors were just way for, more ahead of, ahead of us that we, we don't know is the, is the answer. The, the land has been kind of left a bit, you know, uh, grow wild. The, the, the grass is growing around them. They're, they're freer. They're left alone, maybe. You know, a good, it's wet and it's damp and it's cold here. It's probably, you know, with some form of spores as they pass on, usually they're on the side of a hill. They don't like direct sunlight. If they're, you know, they're, there's, they're shielded by the rain, they seem to be good kind of nesting grounds for uh, the shade that is required for uh, mushrooms to grow anyway. Now, mushrooms grow here a lot all over the country, but certain types of mushrooms grow in certain types of places. It's slightly chicken egg, but it's also, is it that kind of deeper connective tissue that connects us to a much deeper knowledge, not much deeper wisdom of the old, of the old ways of the, of, of what you tap into when you really go into deep meditation, you don't have to be on any, any form of a drug to, to feel a huge connective ability with our connective energy with people that are, may not be next to you. And, you know, that, that power that we actually have deep in ourselves from a sense of real, just pay, peace and calm which can be connected into and and tapped into through various mechanisms and means and then then that opens i think that door and or that veil into the other world that you can kind of access a bit easier then because you can really sense it because you felt it and that's what like i think is the the magic before and after those moments it's 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 always it's during it's never actually off it's just to, to when you can tap into it when you can see it and then if you want it to be more you're expecting something and and you're asking for something too much but yeah, it's, it's to actually think, recognize it i think that's the thing is like recognizing that it is it is it is there like recognizing that that other world that you know if that's how we want to frame it or that that connection is always present and it is it is it, the invitation is always there for us to tap into it mm-hmm. but also you know bringing ourselves rather than coming with our hands out you know, mm-hmm. we are bringing ourselves to that encounter and it's an interaction. Mm-hmm. It is, mm-hmm. it is an exchange. You know, I think if you go, if you go to the other world with your, with your, you know, with your mouth open and your, your two hands hanging, um, you're going to be, you, you, you're not going to get what you're looking for, but if you bring yourself and you bring your creativity and you bring the wholeness of your, of yourself there and you offer yourself up, I think you get you and without expectation and without, um, demand mm-hmm. and with openness, then I, that is where I think um, gifts can happen or not. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, 100%. And, you know, uh, this is just jogging my memory about a couple of things. Well, I've done quite a bit of holotrophic breathing in the past few years because I'm a pretty sober girly these days. Um, But I still like to, you know, get out of my own mind's way, but I don't necessarily like to sit and just breathe in and out and ohm myself either. Like holotrophic breathing can be very powerful, very effective. It's a workout. Um, but I sure. think some people get really put off by their own, their own energy because you will start feeling like you're moving at the speed of light in every direction. And it's just the sheer energy that's always in your body, but it gets pushed to the background because your mind's too busy with other stuff. But when you really go inside, you see what's there. And it's like, we get so afraid of what we are actually comprised of, which is maybe magic itself. I mean, our electrons are moving at the speed of light and that's happening constantly, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. just, just as a food for thought. And And this idea of like punishment for saying me, 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 I think it's a lesson from mother nature in a way you can look at it as a framing of the lesson from another mother nature is that mother nature, if mother nature said to us, give me, 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 we wouldn't have a place to live, you know? So I think emulating that sort of energy of you should be giving, you should try to reflect and have a form of worship towards your land or your creator by also emulating those same characteristics and you will free yourself from suffering. I mean, that's a big, that's a big point of of, of faith and belief in men, across many different schools of belief is to emulate that energy as well. Um, and a good reminder because our egos and the, the this three-dimensional plane is very trying to tempt us into that too far in that pendulum swing of individuality to the point where we're kind of lobbing ourselves off from ourselves. And then we just kind of collapse in on ourselves and then what do you have? A crisis. <laughs> but then the only way is up from there. And I think that's its own learning lesson. Some of us have to go through the hard way. Absolutely. You can get yeah. there. You can get there the hard way, or you can get there the easy way. And sometimes, sometimes you do get there faster the hard way, because like there's no other option. Yep. <laughs> you can yep. get to a place where it's like, all right, that was. I think that was Eckhart Tolle's experience of like, you know, um, there was there there came a point where there was no other option but to but to lose the ego because it was that or it was that or cease to exist. It was yeah. too painful. So, mm. You know, it's it's a it's a path. Yeah. I'm sorry, then, Aaron, you were going to say something. Go ahead. Yeah. Aaron, did you have something to say? In a note, I did. And now it's gone. <laughs> okay. I, got, I have one thing to say that maybe will will spark the, the neurons in a new way. I listened to a lecture from Terrence McKenna and I think I brought it up in maybe the second podcast episode, but he talked about like his, his recurring experiences of taking a super high dose of DMT. And it would be like, he would go to this place and, you know, aside, one of the lessons was that, that these, these energy beings that were there that were maybe called elves, you know, these other, these beings of this other world, right they didn't want him to get caught up in the fact that this was such a crazy looking place. They're like, no, no, you're here for like a short amount of time, create things with us, give yourself to us. Like they were like taking balls of light and like transmuting it and synesthetically changing it into something else. And they said to him, you can do this too. And I think it was this, for me, I saw it as this profound kind of metaphor that like we are ultimately all creators. And that is something that drives us forward and can also connect us to that other world and is very useful to us in our lived experience and can be helpful to others is to kind of tap into that idea of creation. And, um, I think sometimes we forget that because we're, we kind of diminish ourselves again and, um, that blocks us up and stops us up. And I think you're either Mm -hmm. in that energy or kind of go towards energy, or you are self-sabotaging because you're not allowing that in. And there's really no in between. I don't think you can be neutral in that experience and the lived experience. That's what I think anyway, then that's been my own experience. (laughs) So I've been choosing to create rather than self-sabotage in the past year. It's been to my betterment. And the reason why we have a podcast, I guess. Nice. Good job. <laughs> and that, I, I think you're dead right. I think like that, the, like the invitation 
always is and should be to create because we're, we're creative creatures we people talk to me and go oh i'm just not very creative I'm like yeah you are you're a human being like you're you're creating yourself newly every year every seven years you know like you're a new person you're just doing it subconsciously so you're if you have that, if you have that power internally you have the power to to you to tap into your imagination you it's a muscle like going to the gym you know if you if you start imagining if you start you know whether it's reading books listening books or going to plays watching movies you know you're you're exercising a muscle of imagination by by believing it by getting captured into the emotionality of of the of the story and the narration and that in itself is a muscle and a way of practicing to be more imaginative, to immerse yourself in the kind of magic that is other. And that's kind of, I think, where I, I think in, in a way of trying to tie all this together, whether it's whether it's really going to work or not, it's <laughs> this aspect of understanding other. And we, we have no concept of really how to to comprehend our internal language from someone else's point of view no more than we can understand anyone else's internal landscape you know we just don't have that capacity really we can talk till the cows come home and it's only in in kind of deep theta waves maybe that we can kind of resonate and we can really Mm -hmm. tap into and get on the flow and you can see it with musicians when when they play when sometimes we talk about it you know singers will say this you know they put eeg on people and and they're they're all in sync they're all their their hearts are beating the same way. Their 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 wavelengths in in the neural activity are all the same because they're on the same pathway and they're tapped into something really rhythmic and really kind of subconscious and it's something kind of magic and it is magic. It's absolutely magical. Yeah, and we can kind of synchronize and line up. And I think the the invitation to explore mushrooms which i think you know you've done an amazing job of of having such a a kind of scientific aspect as well as kind of your own experience and and asking questions about it and finding it and just enjoying it i think the fact that it's it's even uh, out there as an invitation for people to explore their own internal landscape by by any form of interaction with mycelial uh you know anything because it's just you're, you're only going to put your feet further into the ground in that connective tissue that helps you kind of tie those connections into being part of this human tribe, being part of this overarching, non-racial, non-sex divided being of human. And we're all essentially the same. We're very, 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 very similar with micro differences that separate us. And yet we divide ourselves massively and every time I hear a story whether it's a myth from Africa or, or South Africa it reminds me of the Irish equivalent and they're so similar where there's only so many stories you can tell and it's always coming back to the fact that we're all going through so many of the same emotions in our daily routine we have a beginning middle and end every single day the sun and the moon and the stars they all shine in different parts of the sky for all of us but we all look up at them and so we're all looking down at the same things growing underground Mm -hmm. and it's just a way to bring us back into trying to understand what it's like to connect with other people maybe yeah Mm -hmm. i know i think i think there's this like it is listening to the stories of others that and it is there's something for me about the more we celebrate each other's differences and the more we listen to people from other places and who've had different experiences the more we start to resonate with our own experiences and the more we, we enrich our own experiences and our own perspectives. Um, and, and kind of, in, you know, in a funny way, the more we, 
the more we try and cling to um, a particular point of view as being objective or true, the poorer we become, the more we impoverish ourselves. But I also I, I kind of wanted to, to say something about the creativity aspect as well, because I often find when somebody says to me, I'm not creative, I'm kind of going, you, you know, yes, you are, <laughs> because I think we have a we have a particular way that we have divided and classified and put a bit of a hierarchy on creativity because mm-hmm. some people are incredibly creative with the way that they create an atmosphere or they create a home or they create a meal or they create a community or a system or a connection. But because that's not art, we don't think it's creative because somebody somewhere doesn't pay you to do it. It's not creative. Or if somebody somewhere does pay you to do it, it's not creative because it's just a job. Mm-hmm. So we kind of have like, I think we also kind of have a, a little bit of baggage around the idea of creativity sometimes. So it's it can be, I think, helpful to reframe a little bit and to kind of say, well, what what are the ways in which we are being creative at a given moment? Because it's not always, you know, for us, it's storytelling and it's podcasting and it's and it's research and it's it's sharing these things with people and bringing them into our own interests and fascinations and hyperfixations. Um, but there are so many paths and there are so many ways to be creative. Mm. And I think when you do that, like creative agency really is just that it is one of those things that can nourish you. It can free you. It can get you out of bad habits. It can get you on the right path. And I also was thinking about the, you know, one of the psychological reasons we fall into cults is we're looking for someone to save us or to have somebody model for us. And we can live through their experience of their greatness. And it really takes away our power because then we start to believe that it's coming from someone else. Um, that's also made of flesh and blood. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. (laughs) Um, so I, I like to see, and I think what is part of this narrative of like climate change and leaders talking to other people and trying to give other people agencies that that's the most useful thing that anyone could do for me is that they take agency for themselves and believe in themselves. Cause if everybody did that, even if that sounds very myopic and like, very like the world could be a better place. But I mean that if everyone felt like that, I mean, it might look, the world might look a lot different if everyone was just chill and happy in themselves. Cause a lot of people are destroying because they are not tapping into that and something's really missing. And then they're like, well, I guess I'll just destroy everything. <laughs> and it's like, no, well, why don't Absolutely. you well, well, come on? I got, I got watercolors here. You want to play with some gouache? I got metallic gouache. <laughs> come on, come on. I got, I got cold pressed paper here. I got lots of brushes. Come and explore. Why don't you do that I, instead? <laughs> I remember having, I remember having a conversation about, you know, the, the divinity of, of, of human beings and, I, you know, many years ago, uh, in a, in a group where we often discuss these kinds of ideas, and somebody said, you know, there's a lot of people in the world. If you look at the kind of the the state of the world, a lot of people are behaving in ways that are not divine at all. And I remember just thinking, well, they're they're behaving in ways that are very in line with the divinity of pagan gods, because destroying <laughs> the whole fucking world because you're in a tantrum is absolutely a godlike behavior. And and you know, we will it is part of the duality of the human experience that we will slice this into positive and negative and good versus bad. And there is a degree to which we need to, you know, exercise our discernment and our judgment in the world and in, in the kind of world that we want to live in and create. But like, there's something interesting to me about those people who are acting out are no less than those people who are attempting to connect they're they're not you know we're not better than other humans who are less aware of their own power 
Mm-hmm. And we're not, you know, we're not worse than them either. Mm-hmm. But we're not, I think it's, 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 we're not more powerful. We're not better. We're not more mm-hmm. special. Yeah. We're all human and we're all fallible and mm-hmm. we're all capable of incredibly creative, wonderful things. And we're also capable of incredible cruelty and destruction. And I think it's, it's, for me, it's really useful to keep my eye on that. Um, yeah. You know, there's no monsters. It's just people. And, and the fact that humanity also encompasses a lot of stuff that we would like to think was monstrous and would like to other and would like to push away. It's, it's just people. <laughs> that's why spooky stories are so much more comforting because there's several degrees removed from reality. And I can safely explore that without, you know, maybe I could get haunted, but you know, <laughs> it's yeah. different than the reality. And it, it's safely yeah. not a person. You can always recognize a ghost. Mm-hmm. You can see through it. Yes. <laughs> but like yes. a person, a person just looks like a person. You can't tell which one is safe, you know, and, and, and the fairies just look like fairies and you can't tell. Can't tell. <laughs> and we're not very good at telling when they're about to either murderize us or just give us a cup of tea. We're really bad at it, actually. Uh, but, you know, that's the thing. <laughs> Uh, it's hard to Especially read. after two years being completely out of practice. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> totally, totally. So, you know, when you get the blank stares from people, like, ah, there's a fake. Ah. Or maybe there's, there's just somebody who's on mushrooms. I don't know. Like, it could be anything. It could be <laughs> maybe any- it's someone who's been in COVID maybe. quarantine for two years and they're trying to reintegrate their social skills. <laughs> even even uh-huh. with Zoom here, this is still a level removed that's giving me some <sighs> grace. I don't know what it'd be like in person. I try yeah. my best. <laughs> Let's give everyone some grace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We, we met for dinner today or for lunch today and we Did. kind of just forgot. There was like, we used to meet a lot. And we'd never meet each other anymore for the last two years. We can do this again. We're we can do it do again. We, can, okay. we can just hang out now. We can just like go to the same place at the same time. And mad. No just problem. mad. Mental. Mad. You might even Mental. be able to cough a little and people won't look at you like you're the scum of the earth. Ah, uh, no. No, that's, we're not there yet. I don't know. I don't <laughs> no, know. Not yet. We're not quite <laughs> there I, yet. I, I, I hold them in. I hold them in myself too. I'm yeah, like, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be the first one. <laughs> but I might I'm not judge you. I'm really good at the elbow cough. Like the full muffled like... You know, nothing, <laughs> nothing going on here. Nothing, going nothing on to here. see, nothing yeah. to see here. Well, you two, it's been wonderful having you on today. And I don't know if we answer, I think we answer a lot of questions and we strayed all, all over the psyche today. And it was a very nice, it was like flossing my brain. So thank you so much for coming on. I hope we'll have another reason to cross maybe for Halloween. Cause you brought up a very interesting thing. Halloween would be, would be a really fun one. Um, but in the meanwhile, any, any thought thoughts, last things you'd like to wrap up with parting words for the, the budding mycological, um, and now Irish and Celtic mythological audience. Uh, I did discover how easy it is to propagate mushrooms recently and, uh, you know, propagating healthy mushrooms, just like artist conch or, whatever you know you just like literally it's pretty like in ireland anyway it's pretty easy if you just get the right areas and i'm just starting into doing that because i think it must be one of the most like fulfilling things to actually like see mushrooms grow for yourself so uh whatever like i love plants i probably love plants more than people um and so i'm kind of i'm getting excited about actually delving into growing some mushrooms of various varieties and so that's going to go alongside with some things. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. Someone asked me too. Okay. I had a few people ask me in the foraging community about whether or not they, they assume that I've grown many and I actually haven't, but I need to get my hands dirty with some of those grow kits with the spray grow kits. And then we'll see where it goes from there. <laughs> yeah. That's wonderful. Nice. And Soraka, what about you? Um, 
Do I have any closing thoughts? It's very hard for me to actually narrow down to a point sometimes because the the divergent thought is just kind of everywhere. The divergent thinking is kicking in, and I'm like, what does that say? Well, isn't that the whole point though of nature and divergent thought is that it's okay to wander around idly. It's okay to leave things unfinished, and creativity is never really done. So maybe we could paradoxically nice. end on that. Yeah, I think, that's nice. <laughs> I, like I think I'm happy with that. That's good. Awesome. All right. Well, the two of you, thanks so much for coming on to my podcast today and uh, we'll see you on the internet. And uh, b- b- before we go, uh, so rude of me, I'm sorry. I got lost in this sauce. Where can everyone find you online? Oh, well, they can find uh, us at Candlelit Tales. CandlelitTales.ie is our website. Uh, the Candlelit Tales podcast is our podcast. And we have an Instagram uh, that I don't do anything with. So Aaron will tell you about it. It's also called Candlelit Tales. And you can find us Facebook. We also have a Twitter that is very active, but you can reach out to us on Instagram or Facebook if you are curious for questions. And we have a uh, contact us in our email, our website, rather. I like to go directly to our emails. So if you're interested in looking up what we do, our workshops, what we try and do with that, with the, with mythology, it's all on our website and what our, our most recent gigs and everything is on our Instagram and Facebook. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Wonderful. Thanks so much for sharing your energy with us today. And I'm um, looking forward to contacting and connecting with you guys in the future. Thank you so much. Awesome. Daily. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Now that's all we have time for today for this episode episode 10 of the future mycelium podcast if you'd like to connect with me you can find me on instagram at future.mycelium you can also find me at mushroom affirmations on instagram if you'd like to reach out to me to send your inquiries corrections thoughts feelings foraging tips stories photos pg 13 max please you can email me at futuremyceliumpod at gmail.com if you're able to, please give a five-star rating on any listening platform for your podcasting preferences. It really, really helps chug, chug out the algorithm in the right way. I am ranking. I have looked myself up Mushroom Podcast, and I've seen that I'm there. We're getting there. The listens are still coming in. I'm really happy about that. Praise be to our divine creator for that. And I just want to say that's it. I think that I've laid out everything I can lay out. I don't have much of an outro be careful. <laughs> I feel that um, the the belief in fairies and the fae, the way the Irish experience it, is quite infectious. So, you know, if you're an easily persuadable person, you know, you got to be careful what you pay attention to, what you believe in. And when in doubt, clergy it out. All right, we'll see you all in the next one. Bye. Now it's time to thank our sources. First off, let me thank the wonderful W.Y. Evans Wentz for their book, The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries with a foreword by Terence McKenna. Let us thank Bob Coran for the Irish Field Guide to Fairies. And let us thank Indiana University Press and Laura Forsberg specifically for her paper, Nature's Invisibilia, the Victorian Microscope in the Miniature Fairy. And I'd really recommend any of you read that for nuance. It is such a good, good paper. And just because it's talking about the Victorian era doesn't mean that it can't be comparative to the present day. I think if anything, it's more important than ever. 
actually. So if you'd like to read that or want access to this paper, I can hook you up <laughs> if you're into that. We can also thank the specific story called The Diamond Lens by Fitz James O'Brien that we mentioned. Thank you to itsepic.com for their article Unmasking the Realities of the Tinkerbell Effect, written by Nicole Ong on November 2nd, 2017. And thank you to nancyfriedman.typepad.com for her blog post, Word of the Week, Tinkerbell Effect, on July 8th, 2019. There are some fairy, fairy videos that I watched as well from YouTube, so I will bring those up. Thank you to the SciShow channel for their video titled Fairy Rings. Thank you to Travel Tips Ireland for their video Real Fairy Scene in Irish Fairy Ring, full version Travel Tips Ireland. Thank you to The Curious Celt for their drone footage of Fairy Forts of Ireland 4K. I'd also like to mention that the drone footage from the Curious Celt had a poem that I brought into the intro. That poem that I brought into the intro, The Staff of Hazel, Stone of Green, in my very best Irish accent. Uh, they didn't have an original author. When I looked it up, I couldn't find an author of that. So maybe the person who made the drone footage just wrote that up, <laughs> um, but I quoted it. So thank you to the Curious Celt as well for their lovely fairy poem as well. Thank you to Ronan Kelly's Ireland for his video, Ronan Kelly's Ireland, Pat's East Galway Fairies. Thank you to Inner Light Mysteries for their video, In Search of the Fairy Faith in Ireland. Thank you to for Fortress of Loch, uh, titled What Are Fairies? Celtic Mythology Explained, the Dawan Shi. Thank you to Inner Light Mysteries for their video celtic shamanism irish mysticism and the fairy faith thank you to the youtube channel snippets of wisdom for their video terence mckenna the fairy faith and i believe that's all thank you to our sources